0: 30 seconds begins. Thank you. 30 seconds has begun. Clerk, staff is ready when you are.
1: Right. We're calling meeting to order. Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, this is the City of Sacramento Planning and Design Commission meeting. Today's Thursday, August 24th. The time is 5.33 p.m. Clerk, will you please call the roll to establish a quorum? Thank
0: you, Chair. Commissioners, please unmute. Commissioner Jean? Absent? Commissioner Chase? Here. Commissioner Lamas? Here. Commissioner Buckley? It's absent. Commissioner Caden? Here. Commissioner Macias-Reed? Here. Commissioner Young? Absent. Uh, Vice Chair Wallace? Here. Uh, Commissioner Boyd? Absent. Commissioner Andrade. Is absent. Uh, Commissioner Thompson.
2: Here.
1: And Chair Hernandez. Here. Thank you. We have quorum. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to remind members of the public and in the chambers that if you would like to speak on an agenda item, please turn in a speaker slip when that item begins. For members of the public who wish to join virtually, please refer to the agenda for the Zoom link. Once you've joined the meeting and wish to speak, raise your hand to provide public comment when we open the public comment period for your desired item. If you're online, click on Raise Hand at the bottom of your screen. In the mobile app, you can raise your hand by tapping the Raise Hand option in the More tab. And if you're calling in by telephone, raise your hand by dialing star nine, then to unmute or mute yourself, dial star six speakers will be called upon by the last four digits of their phone number you will have three minutes to make your comments after the first speaker we will no longer accept speaker slips and the raise hand feature in zoom will be disabled we'll now move on to the land acknowledgement please rise for the opening acknowledgements in honor of sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands to the original people of this land the nisanan people the southern maidu valley and plains miwok Win wintum people and the people of Walton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe. May we acknowledge and honor the Native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contribution, and lives. Thank you. Please remain standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. You may be seated. First, I want to welcome back Commissioner Thompson. And I also want to um, thank Greg for uh, for being with us up here today. I also want to welcome Heather, uh, who will be a clerk in training today, and welcome back good friend Jeff, who will be a representative from the city attorney's office. Um, So thank you everyone for being here today. Our first item of business is the director's report. Um, So, Greg, whenever you're ready.
3: Thank you, Chair. Um, Just wanted to point out two important policy workshops at Council uh, this month, August 8th, the 2040 general plan. uh, Getting comments from Council on the draft 2040 general plan. Um, And then on August 22nd, the climate action adaptation plan. We had a great community discussion there. Um, And uh, we're looking forward to incorporating all the input we received since April. Um, And also, I just wanted to note Today, the draft master EIR was released, and that's going to be a 45-day comment period, um, with comments due by Tuesday, October 10th. Um, people can send their comments to at cityofsacramento.org.
1: Thank you. This item is receiving file; no vote is required. So we'll move on to the next item, which is the consent calendar. Our uh, we will. Open the consent calendar. This includes the meeting minutes from our June 22nd meeting. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item?
0: Thank you, Chair. I have um, zero speaker slips. I have one speaker online with their hands raised. The first speaker is Ryan. I'm sorry, Uh, yeah, Ryan. Please go
1: ahead. Ryan, whenever you're ready.
0: Oh, he looks like he put his hand down.
1: So I have no speakers. Remaining on this item. Thank you very much. Um, so for the consent calendar, I'm looking for a motion and a second. Again, this is our a meeting minutes from our June 22nd meeting. Commissioner Macias-Reed.
4: I'll move.
1: We have a motion by Commissioner Macias-Reed. Commissioner Caden. Second. And we have a, a second by Commissioner Caden. Clerk, will you please call the roll? Thank you, Chair.
0: Commissioners, please unmute. Commissioner Jean? Absent. Uh, Commissioner Chase? Aye. Commissioner Lamas? Aye. Commissioner Buckley?
5: Absent. Uh,
0: Commissioner Caden? Aye. Commissioner Macias-Reed? Aye. Commissioner Young? Absent. Uh, Vice Chair Wallace? Aye. Commissioner Boyd? Commissioner Andre, his absence. Commissioner Thompson. Aye.
1: And Chair Hernandez. Aye. Thank you, Ma- motion, pu- motion passes. Great, thank you very much. Uh, we'll start the public hearing. Uh, we have item number two, this is Good Bottle P23-009. As a reminder and a refresher for commissioners, we'll first hear a staff presentation, then the applicant will have an opportunity to speak, Commissioners can then ask questions during a Q&A session of staff or the applicant. Then we'll open up the public comment period where, where we'll call upon members of the public who wish to speak and finally bring the discussion back to the dais for further debate and discussion by the commissioners. So, commissioners, are there any disclosures or recusals at this time? Vice Chair Wallace.
6: I had a quick Facebook exchange with the applicant uh, with uh, items consistent with the staff report.
1: Thank you, Vice Chair. Seeing no other hands raised for disclosures or recusals, we'll have an oral presentation by Zach Dalla, Associate Planner, whenever you're ready, Zach.
7: Great, thank you. Good evening to the Chair, Vice Chair, and fellow Commissioners. My name is Zach Dalla, Associate Planner with the Community Development Department. The item before you is the Good Bottle Project, file number P23-009, located at 2527 J Street. The applicant is requesting entitlements to relocate their boutique bottle shop known as Good Bottle to a commercial storefront within the General Commercial Zone and Central City Special Planning District. Good Bottle, which was established in 2019, previously operated out of a retail store at 1123 11th Street in the Central Business District in the Central City. Their boutique bottle shop specializes in high-end spirits, fine wines, and bar tools. And they also offer monthly wine clubs and cocktail kit memberships. To accommodate the relocation of their business to J Street, The project requires planning and design commission review of a conditional use permit to authorize alcohol beverage sales for off premises consumption. Staff acknowledges that the project site is located along the J Street commercial corridor adjacent to the J Street market, which received a conditional use permit approval at the recent July 27th planning and design commission hearing for alcohol sales for off premise consumption. While both businesses would offer alcohol beverage sales, the nature of each business differs in their offerings and unique services. This leads staff to reasonably expect that the two businesses could operate adjacent to one another and would be compatible neighbors without resulting in undue concentration of similar alcohol-related uses. Staff mailed public hearing notices to all property owners, residents, and neighborhood associations within 500 feet of the project site, as well as posted a hearing notice at the project site. To date, staff has received one letter of support, one letter of opposition, and last I checked, 18 e-comments in support. Staff recommends that the Planning and Design Commission approve the entitlement. This concludes my presentation and I'm available for any questions you may have. Additionally, the applicant Chris Sinclair from Good Bottle is in attendance tonight and would like to make a brief introduction to the commission.
1: Thank you very much, Zach. Uh, Will Chris come forward? Welcome, Chris, whenever you're ready.
8: Hi everybody, thank you very much for being here. Um, I just want to say thank you to the handful of people who showed up in support, uh, as well as thank you for allowing us to have this meeting. Um, I love being a part of the Sacramento community. I have done so before being a business owner and I will continue to do so as a business owner. Um, It has been unfortunate that the amount of time and money it's taken me to uh, move my shop is twice that what it took to get open the first time. And I'd be more than happy to talk to any of you at greater length um, in another time. But for the time being, I just want to say thank you. I love this city. I love being a part of this city and... um, Thank you again.
1: Thank you very much, Chris. Appreciate you being here. We'll now move on to Commissioner questions. Commissioners, do you have any questions for staff or the applicant? Hearing and seeing none, we'll move on to the public comment period. Um, Zach, you you noted that we have 18 e-comments in support. Um, I just noticed that there's one other one that came through at 5.21 p.m. this afternoon, so we have 19 e-comments in support for this item. I'll now bring it to the clerk. Clerk, do we have any members of the public who wish to speak on this item?
0: Thank you, Chair. I have zero
1: speaker slips and zero speakers online with their hands raised on this item. Thank you very much. Uh, We will now close the public comment period and bring the discussion back to the dais. Commissioners, are there any questions, comments, Now would also be the time to make a motion on this item. Vice Chair Wallace.
6: Thank you, Chair. Um, I would like to thank uh, Mr. Sinclair for his contributions to this community. They are vast. Um, He was an originator of several really important uh, restaurants in Sacramento that, some of which exist, some of which have uh, departed, <laughs> And um, just noting that um, it is really business, uh, really difficult for a small business right now. And um, I hope that whatever um, sort of uh, impediments he encountered, we can look at whether or not there are opportunities to expedite those kinds of processes. Um, and with that, I would like to move staff's recommendation.
1: Thank you for your comments, Vice Chair Wallace, and I appreciate that. We have a motion by Vice Chair Wallace. Next, we'll move on to Commissioner Macias Reed.
4: Um, I would like to second the motion, and obviously um, would love to talk with you about your experiences. Um, you're not the only one going through them, and would love to find solutions for everyone to, to, to you know, for both uh, city staff and, and applicants to, to work together to, to better make
1: these things uh, go a little bit faster. So thank you. Thank you very much. Seeing no other hands raised by commissioners, clerk, will you please call the roll for a vote? Thank you, Chair. Commissioners, please
0: unmute. Commissioner Jean. No? Commissioner Chase.
9: Aye.
0: Commissioner Lamas. Aye. Commissioner Buckley.
8: I have a question. Sorry. Go
1: ahead, Commissioner um, Buckley. I
8: came in late, and I'm not sure if I can vote on this, not having heard the discussion.
1: Will the city attorney please comment on that and provide some guidance here?
5: Yes, under your rules of procedure, you're supposed to be here for the entire proceeding up until it's brought back to the dais. In other words, I heard all the testimony to be qualified to vote. Thank
0: you. I'll say here. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Caden. Aye. Commissioner Macias-Reed.
4: Aye.
0: Commissioner Young. Is absent? Commissioner, oh, I'm sorry, Vice Chair Wallace. Aye. Commissioner Boyd. Christine. thank you Commissioner Andrade a he's not here uh, Commissioner Thomas Thompson
2: aye
1: uh, chair Hernandez aye thank you motion passes thank you very much congratulations thank you very much to staff for your work on this and appreciate the comments by our fellow commissioners uh, we'll now move on to the discussion calendar um, we're just another refresher reminder. We do uh, things in a little bit of a different order for discussion items. Um, we'll first hear staff presentation, then go straight to public comments, and then we'll bring the discussion back to the dais where we can ask questions and have more debate and discussion on these two next items. So, next we have item number three this is mixed income housing ordinance review workshop file ID 2023 01062. We have a staff presentation by Greta Seuss, associate planner. Greta, whenever you're ready. Thank you, Chair.
10: Good evening, Commissioners. My name is Greta Seuss. I'm an Associate Planner in a Long Range Planning Team. And I'm pleased to present to you tonight our Mixed Income Housing Ordinance Review Project. Today I'll provide a project overview, review what we've done thus far on the project, preview the findings of the recently released draft report, Provide an overview of draft policy objectives and potential ordinance options for your input and close out with next steps. The mixed income housing ordinance which was last updated in 2015 establishes requirements for how new residential development contributes to the production of affordable housing in our city. We're currently underway with a project to consider amendments to this ordinance our adopted housing helmet provides direction for us to do so in program H1. Specifically, the program commits the city to evaluating the effectiveness of the ordinance, conducting an economic feasibility study to guide any decisions on changes to the ordinance, engaging a broad range of stakeholders, and considering amendments to the ordinance with the goal of increasing the amount of affordable housing produced in the city while ensuring the requirements do not pose a constraint to overall housing production. Thus far we have released two key deliverables, a historical analysis of the performance of the mixed income housing ordinance, and case studies of requirements in other jurisdictions. This month we've combined these two previously released reports with a financial feasibility analysis of alternatives into one draft report for use in the deliberation of potential changes to the ordinance. With regard to where we are in the process and what steps will be from here to ordinance adoption, we've split this into three main phases. The first phase right now is the release of the draft report along with a staff memorandum. During this phase, we're looking for any questions or feedback on the draft feasibility analysis as well as input on draft policy objectives and potential ordinance options. After this phase, we'll develop preliminary recommendations for release in October. And after receiving input on those recommendations, we'll come back with final recommendations and then a final ordinance for adoption. Now i will begin with the first part of the report overview, a historical analysis of the mixed income housing ordinance. I'll start by first providing an overview of the original mixed income housing ordinance, which was adopted in 2000. This ordinance was in place from the year 2000 to 2015, and it applied in new growth areas only, shown in gray areas on this map. Developments with 10 or more units were required to provide 15% on-site inclusionary units, being 10% at very low and 5% at low. And single family developments less than five acres were to provide 15% for sale at low income. Projects generally either provided a site for a multifamily low income housing tax credit project within the development or provided inclusionary for sale units within the project. Moving on to the current ordinance structure in place, starting in 2015, the program converted to a citywide housing impact fee program. Current fiscal year fees are at $3.54 per square foot. And $1.53 per square foot in the housing incentive zone, shown in yellow on the map here. The program exempts certain projects from paying the fees, including multifamily projects over 40 dwelling units per acre, single family and duplex projects over 20 dwelling units per acre, and projects with 10 or 10% or more affordable. Additionally, a mixed income housing strategy is required for projects over 100 acres in size. The findings of the historical analysis are listed side by side here. In the 2000 ordinance, most large scale developments chose to satisfy the inclusionary obligation by partnering with an affordable housing developer. Typically market rate projects would donate land and make a cash contribution to a standalone multifamily project financed with low income housing tax credits. The market rate projects would generally fund a portion of the gap, but affordable projects typically also received other public subsidy sources including through SHRA. Including affordable units produced in excess of the inclusionary unit obligation, there were a total of 1,985 affordable units produced as a result of the 2000 ordinance. If only those affordable units that were required to meet the 15% requirement are counted, the number of affordable units produced under the 2000 ordinance totals 1,557 units. This averaged to about 104 or 132 affordable units per year as a result of the ordinance. Now looking at our current ordinance, we have generated about 6.6 million in revenues through 2021 and as of November 2022 SHRA has committed 4.7 million of these funds to assist three affordable housing projects. There are a total of 449 affordable units in the three projects that SHRA has funded or committed to funding um, using housing impact fee funds. Of these 449 units, SHRA attributes production of 27 units to the housing impact fee funding. 407 units have also been produced under mixed income housing strategies for North Lake and rail yards projects. This averages to about 122 or 62 affordable units per year as a result of the ordinance depending on the numbers that you use. For additional context, this slide shows Sacramento total housing production from the year 2000 in contrast with statewide production trends. As you can see, Sacramento's housing production trends were fairly in line with statewide trends. Housing production in the early 2000 consisted primarily of greenfield developments, which slowed in 2007 and 2008 and essentially stopped in 2009 as the Great Recession made new development infeasible. Housing production remained minimal from 2009 to 2014. And in 2015, we started to see an additional or more uh, market rate housing start to get built. And there was also a transition towards a larger share of infill residential development at higher densities. Given these findings and context, I'll close here with some conclusions about the historical analysis. So, for most of the thousands, we saw greenfield developments. Uh, there were large scale projects with low land values and a greater amount of funding availability for affordable and inclusionary housing development. From 2009 to 2014, housing production was Brought to a near halt, as I said, due to the Great Recession. And legal authority to implement the inclusionary programs was also under scrutiny through a case before the California Supreme Court. Often referred to as the Palmer decision. After the Great Recession, we saw a shift. There was a transition away from large scale greenfield developments towards smaller infill residential development. At higher densities, although still in its early stages. The end of redevelopment in California substantially reduced availability of local funding for affordable housing. California reaffirmed inclusionary housing ordinances via another California Supreme Court case in 2015 and AB 1505 in 2017. And in 2020, we experienced a global pandemic affecting global supply chains and saw increased construction and labor costs. In the late 2010s and early 2020s, high-density infill housing is now becoming the majority of housing produced. So considering this evolution of development trends, funding availability, policy shifts, and costs to construct housing, it's clear that the two ordinances were developed to reflect the housing trends during those points in time. And the current ordinance must be reevaluated in light of current development trends, market feasibility, and policy goals. Moving on to some findings from the case study research. This section of the report includes two main sections. One is a summary of jurisdiction requirements in the SACOG region, and the second is a series of more in-depth case studies of requirements in both local and non-local jurisdictions, those being West Sacramento, Roseville, Folsom, Davis, and Denver, Portland, and San Jose. Some of the the themes seen in the SACOG region are a 10% affordable requirement or options, in lieu fee payment being allowed, fee structures varying per square foot per unit or percent of sales price, incentives for higher density development and impact fee reductions for affordable units. Among the larger city themes, we saw a menu of compliance compliance options being offered, variation by market area or AMI, In lieu fee payment being allowed per square foot fees in the west coast cities and incentives for on-site units such as density allowances Parking reduction or impact fee reductions Provided here is a summary table of program structures and fee amounts from the case study jurisdictions Among these we saw an average of about around 10 percent requirements with some going higher and in lieu fee payments ranging from $6,000 6000 to 10000 per market rate unit, uh, 250000 to 478000 per affordable unit, or per square foot fees ranging from $19 to $45. I'll now pass this portion of the presentation on to David Dozema with Kaiser Marston Associates to present the findings of the financial feasibility analysis included in the draft report.
1: Thank you Greta, welcome
11: David. Thank you, commissioners. Um, as I'm sure you can appreciate, uh, the mixed income housing ordinance is a, is a tool whose success depends on market rate development continuing to occur. Um, and so the feasibility analysis is, is a basis for assessing alternatives under that ordinance and the ability of market rate projects to sustain those alternatives. So that's, that's the overall purpose. Um, In conducting that work, we we evaluated prototypical projects, example projects, so they're not, we haven't gone down to specific projects on specific sites, so the findings are general in that way. Um, And there's a proposal to establish increased utility fees and, and we've incorporated that for purposes of the analysis. One of the things that we grappled with in conducting the study is a transition that we saw in, in the conditions in the market, whereas uh, you, during the pandemic, you had this rapid escalation in housing prices, historically low interest rates, strong demand for for sale housing. Um, with rentals, you saw you know, since 2017, roughly 5,000 new rental units be developed, um, low vacancy rates, so strong conditions for development of rental units as well. Um, and that's transitioned to a situation where we have Cooler conditions. We all know about the rise in interest rates. That's put downward pressure on prices and made made for sale projects somewhere more challenging. Um, and then with rentals, we have um, with with the new supply of rentals that's been created in Sacramento, um, rents have have reached a peak and softened somewhat. And we've had higher vacancy rates. Um, and during the pandemic, we saw construction costs uh, go up as well. And so whereas before rent increases sort of could offset those construction cost inter- increases uh, with rents kind of peaking and softening that th- wasn't the case anymore. Um, and then along with those rises in interest rates we've seen upward pressure on the returns that developers need to make projects work so that's that's also affected projects. Um, this is a chart showing trends in home prices you can see this is for countywide you can see those prices kind of rocketing up. Um, over the past several years, and then peaking around May 2022, and then 16% drop since from from there to December, and then have bounced back somewhat during the spring. And this this is about rents and trends in rents. Um, if you look at the turquoise bars there, those are rents for new buildings. Um, you can see those continuing to climb through 2021, and then reaching a peak, and then coming down from that peak a, a bit as as the supply of new units started to to create additional vacancies and more competition um, and softening of those rents. And then that green line that you see there, that's the vacancy rate. So it was low until about 2021 and then popped up to about 8%. Uh, given, Given that shift that we saw, we decided to take an approach of looking at the analysis two ways. Um, one is sort of conditions as we see them today, current current market. We called that, um, which is you know isn't as strong as I've just said, um, and then what we called prior market, um, which are the conditions that supported a lot of the projects you've, you've seen get built recently. Um, and you know the argument for looking at it both ways is that. You know, current market, obviously, we need to present the facts as we see them today. Prior market, I think it's helpful also to, to understand how alternative requirements affect a project that's feasible, like would get built, because that's that's what the ordinance will apply to, a project that would get built. Um, so that's, that's our argument and our thinking and looking at it both ways, because both pieces of information are valuable in, in some respect. Um, this for your background is information on rents and prices at affordable levels. Um, This, this when we refer to these different levels, this is what what rents and prices we're talking about. Um, Once you get to moderate at 110% AMI, low income at 80% AMI, you're starting to get into the market, in market rate range. And so we've suggested in our report kind of staying away from those income levels even though we evaluated them in the report just because they're too close to market rate. These are the different geographic areas we looked at. Um, We wanted to evaluate the findings and pick up differences in in market prices and rents across the city and also differences in the types of projects that were being built. Um, So that's the purpose of that. Uh, This just gives you a quick summary of the types of projects that we evaluated. So for each of these five basic types of projects, we prepared a Real estate pro forma analysis, looking at the revenues and costs of the project, um, and then within those geographic areas, we did sort of adjust the parameters of some of these projects somewhat based on what we were seeing uh, developers propose. Um, so for each of those pro- those five project types and those five geographic areas, we prepared a pro forma, and we put the findings of that pro forma into these three categories. Um, Feasible, the project works. The revenues support the costs. Marginal feasibility, where um, that project is close to working but it's not quite there. We need to have some improvement to move forward. Um, And then infeasible or challenged, meaning it's less likely to be developed in the near term. There's more substantive changes to, to either revenues or costs that are needed to make that project work. And in the tables you'll see later we use these abbreviations F for feasible, M for marginal, and I for infeasible. Um, this summarizes the pro forma in kind of a bar chart format. Um, and I'm gonna go through four bar charts that look the same, but and they're about the same project, just to show you kind of differences in, in, in how we looked at this. So this, the slide we're looking at right now is about the prior more favorable market conditions and results under those more favorable conditions. Um, on the left-hand side, of the slide you see those, a rental project under more favorable conditions and current requirements. So that project pencils, it works, uh, likely to develop as you've seen happen. Um, On the right hand side of the slide, we apply policy changes to that project. And those policy changes are twofold. One is um, the proposed increase in utility fees. So we have a little slice of the bar chart for utility fees and that bumps up. And then we have on the left hand side looks purplish to me is is the the, the amount of debt and equity investment that can be supported by the rent of the project. And that when we restrict 10% of the units at low income which is what this scenario is looking at, that that bar gets shorter because there's just less rent to support investment in the project. So what was a feasible project moves in, in this example into the marginal feasible category. Um close, but not quite there. This does the same thing, but looks under at the current market condition, which, as we've said, isn't as good. Um, so on the left hand side, we have um, that same project, but the the amount of investment supported by the rent is less because there's less rent, the rents have come down a little bit. and because the return expectations are a little bit higher because, um, with safer investments returning better, well, you know, a risky investment needs has to return better too in order to attract capital. So that's, that's um, why, you know, all else being equal, you need to invest less in that project for that given amount of rent, given, given what's happened. So that's, that is the current market scenario, and, and revenues and costs are out of balance in that scenario with the existing requirements. And then, so moving over to the right hand side, with um, those same policy changes we looked at in the previous slide applied to it, um, it, it sort of takes what was infeasible and makes it a bit more so. Um, is sort of the, the sad story. Um, this this applies um, applies that same kind of logic to for sale projects in on lots of different scenarios. Um, if they're numbered, so. Number three through 22, all of that is prior more favorable market conditions and results under those prior more favorable market conditions. So, just in summary, um, we, we we find support for 10% requirement on site at 90% of area median income, and in, in, with a few exceptions, uh, under these more favorable conditions. Um, larger master plan projects, as you saw under the 2000 ordinance, those are the those projects were able to do standalone tax credit projects. And, and we see in these results here that you know under that circumstance, projects are able to support a higher, you know, a, bit of a higher requirement. Um, in terms of fees supported, $10 a square foot in, in most areas with, with some exception, and then $20 a square foot in Central City, North Natomas, and inner South and East neighborhoods. And this this is again under the favorable conditions more prior, more favorable conditions, starting from a feasible project baseline. Um, and then if, if you look at it under the current market condition, um, and, and as I explained earlier, you know, I means infeasible. You see a lot more I's on the chart. Um, and, and sort of the, 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 the broad takeaway is that it's hard, it's hard to find support for any increase in requirement, um, on-site units or fees. There are some exceptions to that um, in the central city. Area We see some support for some limited increase in fees and then in small lot projects in the inner south and east neighborhoods. Again, this is all for sale projects we're looking at here. And then with this, um, this is rentals. So now we're moving to rentals. Um, The first two rows, row one and row two, that is the current less favorable market condition and you can see lots of eyes across the row there. Um, Doesn't show support. For an, for an increase under, under current conditions. Row three through 19, those are under prior more favorable conditions. Um, and looking at those more favorable conditions and testing starting from a baseline of a feasible project, uh, we see limited support for an on-site requirement in the inner south and east neighborhoods, um, uh, up to 5%. And then um, in terms of fees, removal of incentives you know, the zero dollar rate that's in place for rentals today, over 40 dwelling units per acre, um, $10 a square foot in the inner south and east neighborhoods and $15 uh, per square foot in the central city. This shows, uh, this expresses the findings a different way. All the all the alternatives with respect to the mixed income housing ordinance are identified as a per square foot amount, as per square foot cost. What is? What does it mean to the project? And the utility of it is to just compare like what on-site options look like in terms of the impact on the project to different fee options. That's part of the utility of this. Um, and then you can see across the board there's a gray like pedestal that all these bars are standing on. And that that is the proposed net increase in utility fees. So in every case we've assumed that there. And so you can kind of Get a sense of how these, how much that is contributing to the equation here. And if if you look at our report, we this is just for sale projects in in, in an average of three different areas of the city. In, in our report, we do rental projects in other areas. And then, so just to conclude on the feasibility component of the presentation, um, that under the current less favorable conditions, we don't see a lot of the ability of projects to support an increase in requirements under the, under the ordinance. Um, if we focus on the results under more favorable conditions starting from a baseline of a project that would make sense and, and looking at what a project that does make sense under existing requirements and what can that sustain, um, we see um, that for sale projects in particular are in a better position to support an on-site requirement, especially those on bigger sites where there's flexibility to set aside a portion of that bigger site for a 100% affordable project that has tax credits behind it to offset some of that gap. Um, with rentals, even under more favorable conditions, um, because of how much it costs to set aside affordable units and foregone revenue, um, we, we, we we see that it, it looks challenging to include onsite units in these in, in a mixed income format and in a rental project. Um, but there is support for removal of the zero dollar rate. And you, we also, as, as indicated earlier, support for a higher housing fee in, in some locations. So that's that's sort of the end of the feasibility component of the presentation. Greta, Greta will come back. Thank you,
1: Thank you David. Greta?
10: Okay, I'll now move on to our draft policy objectives and potential ordinance options for discussion. So before considering recommended policy options, we think it's important to first discuss what our policy objectives are that we're trying to meet. So displayed here and listed in the released staff memorandum um, in attachment two is a list of draft policy objectives for consideration and discussion. These policy objectives are all supported by the city's adopted housing element. So these are increasing affordable housing production, meeting our lower income housing needs um, in our regional housing needs allocation goals, ensuring long-term affordability, um, meeting the majority of our lower income arena need through deed restricted affordable unit production, affirmatively furthering fair housing, Um, One way to do this is providing more affordable housing opportunities in higher opportunity areas of the city. Uh, Anti-displacement, ensuring affordable housing opportunities are created in areas at risk of gentrification or displacement. Um, Creating mixed income communities and neighborhoods. And then not posing a constraint to overall housing production. Um, So those are the listed draft um, policy objectives. And then Next, I'm gonna walk through potential program options. Uh, This first list is a broad brushstroke list of potential options. So they don't include specified fee levels or percent requirements. Um, The purpose of this list is to consider how each of these may or may not contribute to our drafted policy objectives. So these being a citywide per square foot impact fee, um, an amount to be determined, but removal of the zero dollar rate for high density development and the housing incentive zone. Second is looking at a citywide percent requirement on site, with a lower in lieu fee. Um, this option would likely make the in lieu fee payment more more of a, an option, more of the preferred um, route. And then city uh, citywide percent on site units required with a higher in lieu fee option. Um, which would likely result in us seeing more on site units produced, uh, varying requirements um, by strength of Sacramento sub markets, um, and then requiring on site units in higher opportunity areas. So, in the staff memorandum, we lay these out and how we believe these may or may not be meeting the identified policy objectives with those um, green, dark green, light green, and orange and red colors. And while there isn't a way to be certain of outcomes, we attempt to categorize the option based on their likelihood of meeting each objective. In addition to the generalized program structures, we wanted to provide a list of potential options that could be considered for the ordinance. So starting with some flexible ordinance options, um, one approach could be to allow a modified percentage of affordable units that maintains the same total number of bedrooms. Within the affordable units, um, this could be referred to as a configure, reconfiguration of bedrooms. Uh, for example, instead of um, providing 10 one-bedroom unit um, units, allowing three three-bedroom units and one one-bedroom unit, for an example. Um, another flexible ordinance option could be allowing multiple options for meeting affordability requirements on site. For example, there could be an option of a 10% requirement at 60% AMI rents or a, a choice of an 8% at 50 AMI. So just just for an example. Um, large sites, uh, that is what, something that we would like to address potentially in this ordinance. Um, you know, requiring larger master plan communities of a specified size to provide a higher affordability percentage on site, um, as was supported in the feasibility analysis. And continuing, continuing on, um, looking at potential financial tool or incentive options that we have. Um, so we currently have a, a zero dollar rate program for city controlled impact fees. Um, there's a certain amount set aside in the budget every year for this program. Um, So that's an incentive that uh, we can utilize for this ordinance. Um, Other ordinance implementation options um, could be adjusting the fee levels annually based on construction cost index, like we currently do. Um, If we are basing requirements on market market rate areas or on market areas, um, adjusting those market areas every four years or a specified number of years um, using criteria that's specified in the ordinance. Um, Requiring a planning commission or city council approval of in lieu fee usage for projects of certain sizes or in specified geographic areas. This is something we saw in some of our case study jurisdictions. Establishing a threshold project size above which program requirements apply such as five or 10 units. And phasing in of new fee levels over a specified number of years depending on fee levels. So that concludes that section. Um, in terms of next steps, we are accepting public comments on the feasibility analysis, draft policy objectives, and potential ordinance options until September 8th. And the next part of this project will be bringing pre- preliminary recommendations um, back in October um, for, for your input at that time. In terms of what we're seeking from you today, in, in terms of input, um, we're, we're Interested to know if there are any policy objectives you think might be list- missing from this list? Um, you know, should modifications or clarifications be made to the listed policy objectives or ordinance options? Um, and what else, you know, are we missing anything in, in the list of options that we uh, presented? So that concludes my presentation. I'm available for questions along with um, Matt Hurdle over there and David um, from Kaiser Marston. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Greta, I appreciate the presentation. Um, Let's open up the public comment period. Mm -hmm. Clerk, do we have any members of the public who wish to speak on this item?
0: Thank you, Chair. I have two speaker slips and zero speakers online with their hands raised. The first speaker is Chris.
12: Good evening, commissioners. Uh, Chris Norum, North State Building Industry Association, representing the residential home building community. I want to start by thanking the staff for their outreach and uh, the long uh, number of meetings uh, and uh, that outreach by the consultant as well. Um, I want to call your attention to a few things that are in the report, some of them are not in the report, um, for your just overall policy consideration. Um, We have, a large amount of concern from our industry about this policy and what it would do to the uh, ability for us to actually deliver units. Not just from the folks who want to build downtown who have expressed serious opposition to this, but also from affordable builders because of the way that it reconfigures, the way that they can get state grant monies. So I think that's something that the city should really strongly consider as to what it's gonna ultimately affect. Um, The report shows that all rentals are infeasible and that's two-thirds of what the city builds right now. Um, So it would severely affect the rental market if uh, if that was to be pursued. It sounds like that's being recognized. Um, I did want to clarify one thing. This area gets very confusing, uh, the way that different jurisdictions have it listed, but basically most other jurisdictions around us other than Davis and maybe you could argue parts of uh, Roseville have an in-lieu fee, which is what you currently have. Um, An analysis, I think by the way that the city does it, or we we would look at it, um, shows that the current in-lieu fee program is generating more housing. Uh, affordable housing than the prior um, inclusionary zoning requirements. Um, One thing I did notice, well in the report, I would call your attention to what happened in the city of Portland when they implemented this study or this uh, policy, housing production dropped off dramatically. And that's our concern, is that we're not going to be able to provide, it won't be feasible. Um, I will note that we actually did our own analysis, looking at this from a different point of view, looking at it from a more of a market rate point of view. Um, and what it would do, and that analysis, although a couple of years old, I think is still valid in some macro senses. And it shows that home prices would increase by six percent, rents would go up by eight percent, it would reduce production overall by five percent, um, and that the city would probably lose around seventeen hundred units of market rate housing due to the increased uh, costs associated with this policy with inclusionary. So um, our concern is also that basically that you're going to create a policy that focuses more on the low income and generate this additional burden that will drive cost of housing higher and it basically creates um, a difficulty for those trying to get into the middle income housing brackets. Um, I do say I appreciate the staffs uh, focusing on flexibility. We, our builders love to have options of trying to, to meet these requirements. That's great. We want to continue to work with you on that. Um, I think that there are other important solutions that can be considered out there. I mean, the mayor's talked about doing an EIFD. We've talked about the mayor's tomorrow's going to daylight his program for affordable housing for using um, tax, tax, uh, a wider array of taxes, which we as an industry generally support. And I'll say that you know, we, we think that there's a broader array of money that is needed to address this issue. So um, that's kind of my comments for now. I see I'm out of time, but that's, uh, that's it. Thank you so much for your attention and uh, continue to work on this.
0: Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Annie.
13: Hi, good evening, commissioners and city staff. My name is Annie Keyes with the Downtown Sacramento Partnership, a property based improvement district representing 66 blocks within Sacramento's urban core. As the commission begins the process of informing recommendations on any changes to the mixed income housing ordinance, uh, the Downtown Partnership would just like to Im- provide some input on behalf of our stakeholders, as well as those looking to play a role in building out Sacramento's urban neighborhood. Uh, Over the past few years, we've experienced really encouraging momentum in the central city in terms of housing production, uh, with Sacramento emerging as a prime market in the region for welcoming new projects. Uh, However, due in large part to macroeconomic trends posing significant financial challenges to new development, we've seen this momentum come to a grinding halt. Over the past six months, downtown Sacramento has seen a 91% reduction in the number of construction starts for multifamily housing units. So as we look ahead at updating the mixed income housing ordinance, we encourage the commission to consider the feasibility of imposing further cost burdens in an already difficult market. Prioritizing urban infill housing is really imperative when we consider our city's housing and and climate action goals. We can't underestimate the fact that the carbon footprint of someone living in the central city is one-tenth of someone living in more suburban areas. And while we know that there m- more must be done to encourage ease of development for deed-restricted affordable units, we need to en- ensure that policies don't constrain supply, which is demonstrated to be a driving force in lowering average rents in Sacramento. I uh, want to acknowledge the Community Development Department's hard work to create a really comprehensive report for tonight's meeting, and we're looking forward to the opportunity to further engage in dialogue with staff. Thank you for the opportunity to comment. Thank
1: you.
0: Thank you for your comments. Uh, Thank you, Chair, I have no more speakers with their hands raised for this item.
1: Thank you. Um, We will close the public comment period now. I do wanna note that there is one e-comment that came in yesterday, it's from the Midtown Association. They said they've uploaded a letter to the portal which um, outlines uh, similar concerns that was raised here by the public commenters. Um, So now I'll bring the discussion back to the dais. Commissioners, do you have any questions or comments for staff? I see Commissioner Chase.
9: Thank you, Chair. I had a question for the uh, representative from the uh, BIA, uh, <clears throat> if you don't mind. Um, you referred to. Commissioner
1: Chase. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to
9: okay. say. Is my mic on? Go ahead. Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. Um, you referred to uh, that the city could be seeing a, at a loss of 1,700 units. Uh, my understanding from your report is that's actually over a 10 year period of time. That's right. So 170 units per year average. Yes. Okay, but thank you. Thank you, Chair.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Chase. Thank you, Chris. Next, we have Commissioner Caden.
14: Thank you, Chair. And um, thank you, staff, and and um, for, for pursuing this item. It's a really complicated one. Um, I, I wanted to ask, and I think you mentioned this uh, in your presentation on the feasibility side, but just to make sure that, that I was understanding it, because I was looking at Table 2-4, I was looking at the feasibility of the different multifamily housing products. Um, in the current market, and I, so again, I just wanna make sure I'm looking at that right. Under current market conditions and the proposed utility fees, assuming no changes to the mixed income housing ordinance, is it, so both medium density and higher density products are not currently feasible to build anywhere in the city? Is that is that what that's showing? Yes. Okay. And then the footnote there is is suggesting that if we're gonna increase the affordable housing requirements via any of those um, potential proposed actions um, that the feasibility would then become even less likely. Is is that the right way of interpreting that footnote or? Yeah. Okay. All right, I just want to make sure I understood that. Um, all right, and then so this may have been in the report and I missed it, so I apologize, but is there any sense of the number of affordable units that we could expect with some of these different options um, being considered or is that too speculative given you know, where production's going to go?
11: We, we haven't tried to quantify that. Um, obviously, you know, it did depend, I mean, as we've shown doing these two different scenarios, it depends on the robustness of the market in the future. And given that variable, we didn't try to quantify it. Um, you know, it's possible to, you know, make some assumptions and come up with some numbers, but we haven't tried to do that.
14: Yeah. Great. Thanks. Um, I have some other comments, but I'll wait for other Commissioners to do questions. Thank you
1: Thank you Commissioner Caden Commissioner Lamas
15: Thank you chair. Um, I also had a question in terms of the feasibility analysis um, I know that it's a difficult balancing act to try to Encourage um, the development of affordable housing while maintaining the production of much-needed additional market-rate housing units and um, I was looking at a summary of some of the case uh, study analysis and what was happening in the market after they passed certain ordinances that maybe try to encourage development from the market rate side. Um, And there was notes that um, there there seemed to be a stronger correlation to market conditions as opposed to um, maybe ordinances being passed to encourage market rate development and so um, you know it's just something that stood out to me where um, you know the market was really responding um, whether or not these housing ordinances were being passed and in that situation they were being com- becoming less restrictive but less development happened anyways um, and so um, one of the things that I believe I, I noticed during the presentation was that we were averaging about hundred units with the prior mixed income ordinance. Um, but now we're at um, 62, I believe. So it's, it's less um, than average. And so um, that's, um, you know, not very, uh, it's, it's a little concerning, right, It's that, that it's not really helping us get in, in line with our goals here. Um, And so it made me kind of wonder about this analysis that we were going through um, and what kind of projections were were included here. So um, when you were considering the feasibility, what kind of um, subsidy levels were you looking at in terms of um, covering a potential gap for the development of units with um, affordable units, or was this just assuming it was straight market rate development covering the costs to subsidize um, the entire development.
11: So we, we looked at um, sort of multiple al- alternatives there. So when you, have, when you have a big site and there's a possibility to carve out a portion of that site and do a 100% affordable project that's gonna be able to apply for tax credits, get you know, other subsidy sources to offset those costs, and we've looked at that um, the, the the issue is is that 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 model doesn't work in every instance like a you know a, a moderate sized rental project on an urban site that doesn't really have the capability to carve off a piece for a, a separate affordable project is sort of a more challenging model to make work in that that circumstance so we what we did is is look at that model um, in in some neighborhoods but not all neighborhoods neighborhoods that tend to have smaller sites. We didn't look at that sort of outside subsidy coming in to offset some of those costs. Um, so, but in all cases, we sort of looked at both. We, we looked at it even, excuse me, even in the outer neighborhoods, you know, North Natomas, North Sac, Southern neighborhoods, we, we looked at it both ways with those subsidies and without. Um, but in Central City and inner South and East neighborhoods where the sites tend to be smaller, uh, we only looked at sort of the market rate project carrying all the costs of of the affordable units.
15: Thank you for that, and I think um, you know that that is something that I I do think we should consider from the city's perspective. You know that there are a lot of funding opportunities coming out of the state. There's tax credit opportunities. There's um, local funds that can be available to try to offset some of those costs and try to make these projects a little more feasible to pencil out. Um, I think. Um, you know, when I think I was looking at the single family home development numbers as well, and um, I used to work in Stockton for a uh, developer out there, and um, I managed the neighborhood stabilization program, which was a program where we used city funds to acquire single family homes and rehab them to sell them to low income or moderate income households. And one of the things that we noticed as the market was increasing was that um, how households at like 110, 120 AMI couldn't even afford the homes. And I was looking at this, um, you know, an area median, the area median income for, um, I'm sorry, the um, the median income for a four-person household is $113,000. Um, and they said that, you know, homes uh, would be sold for these households at about 420, I believe, or 410. I kind of ran the numbers based on, you know, 7% interest rate and You know, assuming they don't have eighty thousand dollars to put down, twenty percent down payment to avoid PMI, Um, their mortgage is going to be about thirty-five hundred dollars a month, which is more than thirty percent of their income, and at that point, it doesn't even become affordable for a household at a one hundred twenty percent AMI. And so, we're in a situation where we have housing that is just not affordable, right? And um, I I think we, you know, we we got to look at ways to to um, work with both sides, but um, I think uh, just, you know, and actually, um, that, that goes back to my question, and I have a question for the city. Um, i sorry if I'm taking up a lot of time, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, when we look at the development of um, affordable housing units, um, I believe we just approved a project that had the affordable components um, it was like a large project in phased approaches, and the affordable component was at the very end. What happens um, if they get to the very end and the market can no longer sustain the development of it? Do is there are they still mandated to build out those affordable units? Is there a fee they pay because they weren't able to build out the units? Like, how do we assure, we assure that those? Approvals um, stay in place and that those units do get built.
10: I See that Christine is walking up. I think she might be the best person to answer this
16: Hi, Uh, Christine Weichert. I'm the director of development finance for Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency not sure which project you're speaking of but um, Right now the current ordinance is if you are going to meet your obligation through development construction because that is an an option most developers do pay the fee, but if it's a large development, sometimes they'll construct instead. Um, we require that you can, um, you cannot, you can pull up about 50 to 75% of your market rate permits before you build your affordable housing. So you're never gonna get beyond that certain number of percentages before your affordable housing is built. So that ensures that at some point, the affordable housing will be constructed. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. I yield my time.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Lamas. Next, we have commission- Commissioner Buckley.
8: Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you for the presentations. They're really informative. Really appreciate it. Um, my question was for uh, was around the feasibility study. First, um, I feel like in the conversations I've been part of around this, the black box feels like the expected investor returns and it's it's hard to i think to decipher as a member of the public what what is how does that play into the analysis we we know everyone wants to um, gain a profit from the development of housing but sort of how do you how do you analyze that can you give us a rendition of that
11: sure so for the for the for sale projects um we look at uh, sort of a a threshold return sort of like the Minimum return that a developer would be looking for to make that project sort of worth their while or going into it, um, and for for sale projects we look at 10% of the sales price as sort of that threshold. Um, you know, there's you know you see you see projects you know a little bit lower than that, but we didn't want to squeeze it down that low. So we, we have 10% of sales prices is the target, uh, and that the way that's recognized in the analysis is we sort of we have the estimated sales price, and then we subtract, in effect, that target uh, developer return. Is treated it sort of as a cost that needs to be recognized um, in the balance of the project. There, um, with with regard to rentals, uh, that's a sort of a different analysis. We use we use what's called a yield on yield on cost or return on cost, um, and, and what that is is. It's a relationship between the net income, um, which is rent less property taxes and other expenses that the rental property has to bear in operating. Um, so the, the net net operating income is called. Um, it's a relationship between that net rental income or net operating income and the investment or the dev- total development cost of the project. Um, and so the, the threshold we use there, that is sort of the minimum that a developer would need to do the project, is uh, under current, and we do it two different ways with these different market scenarios. So six and a half percent under the current market scenario. Um, And and the way we get that six and a half percent is we look at uh, what a a finished building has sold for. um, And how does does the rental income of that finished building relate to the sales price of that building? Um, And it's called a cap rate, and it's, that relationship based on the most recent sale that we had at the time we did this work showed about a 5% cap rate. And so that's, that's like a finished project so you have no development risk in that. Uh, so going into a project where there's development risk, you need to do better than that 5%. You need a, sp- a spread above that 5%. And so we have 1.5% above that 5% is where we get our 6.5%. So, in, the, in those bar charts that we were looking at at one point in the presentation, are sort of an example of, of how that works. We take the net rental income uh, that we have estimated for each project and we divide by that 6.5%, and that's combined debt and equity what a developer would be willing to invest in and in make that 6.5% return. That's what they can afford to do and get their 6.5% return. So, we call that the supported investment. Um, so that's what we do. And then with the with the um, prior, more favorable market condition, we looked at building sales that were sort of before interest rates started coming up and putting that upward pressure on those cap rates. And so there we, we saw an average of four newer buildings in Sacramento that sold, and they sold for an average cap rate of 4.7%. Um, and, and so we have a spread over that 4.7%, and that gets us to... A, 6.05%, so we're just like 45 basis points below, lower than, than the current market. Uh, and that, in the, the way the math works, a lower return means you can afford to put more money into the project and make that return, so it supports more investment with that lower return.
8: That's really helpful, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you said a few things changed between the prior and the current market. Can you um, characterize sort of the impact of, like, uh, the fee uh, or the, I'm sorry, of, of the of the proposals of the mixed-income housing um, options versus things like, um, you know, the increase in in uh, construction costs over that, that period that accounts for some of the the raised um, prices, right?
11: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that... Obviously, we looked at a bunch of different scenarios. So it depends on what scenario you pick and how we would answer that question. Um, with a with sort of a fee in the in the right now three fifty four to up to twenty dollar range. Um, once you get up, I'm going to put this in terms of one of the ways I like to think about this is just how much is this as a percent of the cost of the project? Right. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna find my number on that for you. Um, and so if we look at sort of no, no change, no change in requirements where we are today and package your existing permit costs together as a bundle, they're like roughly 6% of the cost of a central city rental project. And then if we were go up to like a 15% onsite affordability requirement, that, that gets into kind of the 15 to 20% range of overall cost of the things we're requiring of this project to do. So it's like, bet- you know, at the low end, because there's no fee today, no affordable fee for a high density project today. 5 to 6% going up to like 15 to 20%. So it uh, you know have costs increased that much over the pandemic yet yeah for sure. So I mean that that gives you some sense. I mean maybe it's a roundabout way to answer your question, but their material you put in 15% requirement is a material requirement for sure, but so have these cost increases been very material.
8: That's really helpful. Thank you. And that makes a lot of sense and um, I've one more question maybe for staff. Um, you know when we when, as, as a commission as we consider optionality um, and the choices and the you know the recommendations can you speak to sort of how you see like a in lieu fee option playing out versus you know a, you know so we're not going to do a 10% um Production piece we're going to choose in Luffy sort of how do how do developers make those choices and sort of what kind of trends do you see in those choices?
10: Um, I would say that in the options that we listed um, You know in the staff memorandum there in the table there listed um, that I presented in earlier uh, we have these two options right of the citywide percent on-site requirement one with a lower in lieu fee option, and and the other with a higher in lieu fee option. I touched on this a little bit in my presentation, but we generally see that when an, a lower in lieu fee option is um, is a is a, an option that you know it's more likely, right, that a developer might choose to pay that lower in lieu fee if it does not equal to the to the cost that it would be to put those units in that project. Um, and then the higher in lieu fee would be something that's closer to the cost of um, what the onsite would cost the project. Um,
8: I'm gonna ask one really Pollyanna-ish question. Is there any other consideration besides cost that I going to evolve for making that decision?
17: This is Matt, the manager of long range planning. I would say yeah, I mean I think that it's also time Uh, And also expertise, right? So, a lot of we kind of have two buckets traditionally. We've got market rate developers, we've got affordable housing developers. They know their game very well. They know they, and so for market rate developers that don't operate in those in the system for affordable housing, know how to access the various funding sources, how to navigate uh, the various requirements through SHRA, the state, federal, et cetera. uh, I feel we've heard from many market rate developers, they're just not come from that space, they don't have the expertise, they don't know how to do it. it, it takes a lot more money and time for them to figure that out, and it's not you know worth their time. And we see in most cases for the case studies, best practices, if there is an Luffy option, uh, developers tend to prefer that. They'll pay, they'll pay out, even if it's sometimes higher, just because you know there's challenges with trying to build on-site uh, units. They're, you know, they have to get into monitoring agreements to make sure every year that, that the individuals are living in those units, meet the, affo- the requirements uh, and et cetera. And they have to pay fees for that. Um, so that's that's what we tend to see um, based on the case studies. Great. Thank you. Uh, those are all my questions, Chair.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Buckley. Commissioners, any additional questions or comments for staff? Oh, uh, let's go back to Commissioner Chase.
9: Thank you, Chair. Um, first of all, Greta and everyone else, thank you very much for... Uh, great presentation on what's probably going to be one of the most complex and controversial things that we will deal with for some time here. Um, as an architect, I've lived through it both ways uh, over the years. And, and I'm torn as to which is, you know, which is the, the best way to go about it. And I'm, it may come down to one size doesn't really fit all. Um, I'm thinking, you know, a more dense urban development uh, is a much more difficult one to, to um, segment probably into you know, affordable and, and market-rate units. Uh, on the other hand, I do look at, I, look at, uh, I actually owned one of these. Uh, there were several single-family developments that were done a while back. One was Metro Square in Midtown by Regis Homes and Capital Park Homes by Soterios, uh, SSK. Both of those were single-family and they were, in both cases, able to build a certain number of units uh, as they were building everything else out that were affordable. And the, the, the thing about them, and I think this is one of the benefits of that, you know, the inclusionaries, is that you couldn't tell which was which. You know, they, they were smaller, but from the outside, they had the same materials, everything looked the same. So there was some merit there, and, and I would, I'd be curious as you move forward with this study to to see if you can reach out and get any input from Satiris and um, uh, Regis Holmes as to what their, you know, how they felt about that. Uh, you know, the need or ability to have to because that was what it was required to be inclusionary. Uh, how it worked? Did it have a you know, make a deleterious effect on the project? I'd be curious to, to find that out. Uh, I can't understand how on a, on a more you know dense one of our you know uh, multi-story midtown projects much more difficult uh, to break it out. Uh, but uh, I, I'm still I'm torn, uh, and I, I think it's it is truly truly complicated. I know the intent of the inclusionary uh, housing concept, and I totally agree with it, is to get a mix, living all within the same thing, of people, of all incomes, not just, oh, here's the, oh over there is the affordable housing. Uh, may not be much of a stigma, but there is a separation of that. And we look at something like Midtown, some of the more, much more uh, just eccentric and really vibrant areas, and they are truly a mix of uh, income uh, in them. How to achieve that in a new development, challenging, no question about it, but I think that that inclusionary element uh, is a valuable one, uh, you know, from a social standpoint, so um, I I know you'll have it solved by the time you you bring this back to us, but uh, uh, anyway, it it is complicated, and and I do, I thank you all very much for your attention, BIA for for their input, which I know is all critical, a lot of letter players here to try to come together, and thank you, sir, for your your, uh, financial analysis of this thing, too, so. Thank you, Chair.
1: Thank you very much, Commissioner Chase. Next, we have Commissioner Boyd.
3: Testing, there we go. That's what what happens when you haven't been here in a couple of months. Um, Thank you. Uh, I want to work backwards. Uh, on a couple of, well, a a few questions. Um, I do uh, think my uh, fellow commissioners that had brought up questions similar to what I was going to ask. I just want to parlay a little bit on uh, what was brought up. If um, going, uh, I'll make it easy by going backwards. Uh, The question, paraphrasing, that Commissioner Buckley had asked in in regards to the cost spike, for the material cost spike, Uh, through the pandemic versus pre-pandemic. My question is, what are the projections for material costs going forward? And has that been, or was that put into your uh, presentation? And uh, just the end of that, in the projections, are they sought to be uh, closer to the pre-pandemic price gouging or roughly within, you know, 5%-ish, as close as possible, or not possible, but as, closer, as close as they were prior to uh, the pandemic uh, gouging, price gouging. Price we, gouging, I'll say that, my opinion.
11: Um, so we, we interviewed developers and asked them about their experience with construction costs. We didn't, we didn't to answer your first question, we didn't project them out. Um, into the future, but we did ask, what trends are you seeing? And you know, from separate projects where we have sort of negotiations that we're supporting a public agency on, we also get some feedback on costs from that. Um, and what we've heard through those sources is that there's some softening and downward pressure on costs because as you get Contractors being a little bit slower. They'll uh, bid on more jobs, right? You get more bids on your work and more competitive bids. Um, so there's you know a little bit downward pressure on costs to some extent. That's sort of the anecdotal feedback that we've heard, um, but we haven't projected it outwards.
3: So from your answer then, one couldn't give Could one give a uh, better analysis if projections were made and uh, presented in your presentation so that the actual uh, cost projections going forward that you've laid out for us would be more in line to actuality? Again, you can't uh, foresee the future in, in material costs, but outs, um, using analytics that are available versus anecdotally um, would help. Just giving a, a, a more robust, Um, uh, informative presentation in regards to costs going forward. Just as anything else, having your projections, not having that projection is what just kind of threw me back, like well, no projections for but anyway, with that, thank you. I appreciate uh, your answer. Um, And also going to um, um um planner, uh, uh, Suze. how you doing, Greta? Um, in her presentation, thank you. Um, um, let me just read through my notes here real quick. Oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, you are still up. I haven't got to you yet, Greta. I was trying to keep it a uh, uh, block yeah. together. Uh, in the presentation, that wasn't you, that was this gentleman over here, but uh, public comment was that more, you're okay, you can have a seat, thank you. Um, um, that more affordable housing would be built if more in lieu of fees were used. It's just, it almost sounds like an oxymoron, you know. We'll pay a fee versus building affordable units. But uh, what wasn't quantifying, in, I believe, in that statement is what level of affordable housing um, housing units closer to the 70, 80 percent, still being able to call it affordable, which is more the missing middle. Um, price um, income level, which would be roughly $56,000, $61,000 annual. Um, Again, I go back to, if we can get all the information presented to us so we can all make a a well-informed decision on things that have been presented to us. But I just wanted to bring that that quantification out. Um, But uh, Greta, in your presentation, Um, You did state that, I forgot what the adjective that you use uh, in your presentation, that I'll say a lot of builders went with the, in um, um, uh, sorry, uh, went with building the 10% inclusionary housing units versus the in-lieu fee, do I have that right?
10: Uh, Are you talking about the historical analysis findings, or I think just generally what what we were talking about was the um, the the trade-off there when you have options of an in-lieu fee. So, if there is a um, an in-lieu fee that is higher, it would it would be closer to the cost of actually providing the units on-site, and a lower in-lieu fee would be, you know, not not as comparable to the cost of providing the units on site. So in those scenarios, we typically see that developers might choose to pay the in-lieu fee if it's lower because it um, it's a little more straightforward for them. Um, I, I think that is what you you were asking about.
3: That's actually the second part of it where I was going to go with that. Okay, so it, lower in-lieu fee, and that would help the, um, Low to very low income, using uh, for rental, um, income. Housing units built. Where does that? Where would that put that build?
10: The in lieu fees would go into a, a fund, um, our housing trust fund, that would then go to fund um, gap finding financing for affordable housing developments. That SHRA would, um, you know, be in control of distributing.
3: I'm with you, I'm sorry, I, I wasn't clear on the question that I asked, but I do thank you for that. But just using what your answer, so there's, this, there's a fund from in lieu fees uh, collected. So uh, just walking out this scenario, if the higher percentage of builders are going with the in lieu fee, or developers are going with the in lieu fee, okay, huge fund for get financing for those who would build the low to very low income housing, but by your statement, if more are going for the in fee, how many low to very low income housing units are actually going to be built? You can't answer that specifically, but I was just putting that out there, but but thank you. Again, just wanting to walk uh, this uh, couple of items out, and last question. Is, is there a uh, number on that percentage for the, um, or excuse me, is there a number for the in-lieu fee if the city, um, if all ways, everything goes uh, the way in um, the presentation was um, presented, how much lower would the in-lieu excuse me, how much lower would the in-lieu fee uh, go to?
10: Um, well, our current fee is not, an in lieu fee, it is, um, it's, it's really a, a it's, it's kind of an in lieu fee, but um, we there's no uh, projection right now of what the fee would be. Um, we, we haven't made that determination um,
3: yet. I'm with you. So, again, as you just stated, there isn't a projected number, but. In the presentation, if there's a lower in lieu fee, more units would be built. So what did you use for projection to get to that statement?
10: Um, the, the, the term lower is just um, uh, a, a kind of a, a figure. There's no, um, it's not comparing the fee to an existing fee, it's just a quote-unquote lower versus a quote higher fee as as an example to compare those two options.
3: I'm with you but again, so if I'm looking at the mathematic uh, uh, matter, or, you
17: know, if you'd like to jump in, Matt, because I believe you know where I'm going. Yeah, and so those, those trade-offs are really from what we know in for development, so developers are going to choose the option that is Least expensive and easier for them to do to, to build their market rate project. So, if you have an option, you can either build on-site units as affordable, or you can do pay a fee. Unless that fee is the same cost or more than actually constructing those units on-site, the developers typically going to go with that in-lieu fee. They're going to pay it so that they can just pay it pot, move forward, and construct because they don't typically build affordable housing. So that's your you know, kind of your trade-offs. So if you have a really high in-lieu fee you're gonna see more on-site housing production probably because like, oh, well, I don't want to pay that much. I'm just gonna build it on-site because I'm building anyway. But if the fee is lower, they're gonna say, well, it's gonna be more of a pain for me to build on-site. I'm just gonna pay the fee. And so it, it would be it would tip the scales for how many, how many uh, units would be built on-site versus how much would be paid in the fee. So that's an exa- example. We won't really know what that looks like uh, until we come up with what those numbers would be or what those percentage on-site would be and then lieu fees. So when we come back in October, We'll have some recommendations for a proposal for folks to consider and we could think about those implications in a little more detail. Thank you, man, I appreciate that.
3: Um, I believe that may be my last question. Let me just check real quick. That was it, thank you, thank you everyone. Thank you, Chair. Thank
1: you, Commissioner Boyd. Next we have Commissioner Macias-Reed. Thank you, Chair. Um,
4: Thank you for the presentation. Um, I will say that I certainly had mentioned this to Matt when I walked in, I I wish I had more time. Um, This is, again, as Commissioner Chase had stated, and many of us already know, a very complex and multifaceted issue. Um, Like many of the issues we're dealing with in our city today, um, and I, I, I also agree with the comments that Commissioner Chase made, which is there's not, you know, what I'm seeing here is that there's not just one answer to this. Um, just like with homelessness that we're seeing, there's not one answer to, to helping, not solve, but, you know, make this situation better. Um, I do appreciate the analysis, though. This is incredibly helpful. It's a starting point. Um, I I have a question um, out of curiosity that it, i'm not sure that this was obviously not included in in the data analysis but you know i've heard numbers thrown out there in the past oh it's you know it it takes a subsidy of you know 400 to 600,000 per affordable housing unit to build have we as a city done an analysis and if we have through the you know, housing, uh, okay, I see, you guys looking at Christina and SHRA, but what is, you know, have we done an analysis to compare, like, what is the cost uh, subsidy needed per affordable housing unit to build versus, like, we have some ideas about what an fee could be, what other cities and municipalities are charging right now, you know, when we're making this determination, like, is there something that could help us figure out, like, you know, what a developer, you know, would it even be a cost savings to have an in-loop fee versus, you know, building the affordable unit? So anyways, right, I think right. you know what I'm getting at, but yeah, <laughs> you could kind of share. With, yeah,
16: yeah, Christine Weichert. Um, yes, we do have that information um, as we finance affordable housing projects. I, I will say uh, the, the um, current... Um, situation for affordable housing financing is really in flex and changing a lot right now. Things we used to, the two big um, uh, sort of building blocks for affordable housing uh, development or tax credits we keep talking about um, and then um, mortgage revenue bonds. And those are in high, high demand statewide. And so the state has been changing sort of their requirements for that in the last few years. Really putting an emphasis more on homeless and permanent supportive housing projects less on workforce projects and so we as a as, you know shra is a city county agency you know have also been sort of um you know working with that um with those requirements as well um so but we do know we do know the, um, sort of uh, what the costs per unit are i didn't bring them all to i've spent a lot of time recently uh, working on the city county affordable housing plan that we're working on i can tell you um, the cost um, to build a this is not exactly this ordinance, but a sort of a homeless project right now is about five hundred thousand dollars. Um, but that's because there's so many services, which you would see, you know, probably less case management in a, these workforce housing projects that we're talking about today than on homeless projects. But um, you know, I would agree totally with what Matt was saying earlier. I mean the. It's not just the construction uh, that the uh, market rate developers are looking at when they have to build if, if they want to build 10 15 percent affordable on site. It's one thing to construct, but the rents are going to be reduced, and so and the, the property management is really going to change for affordable housing versus market rate housing. So it's it's sort of both they're weighing. They're weighing the the construction costs and then the long term operating
4: expenses that go mm-hmm. along with with that. Indeed, right. restricted unit.
16: But we can get you the current gap, I, I don't want to say today, but what, you know, the difference between what it costs um, to fill the gap for a market rate versus affordable. We can get you that information. Yeah, no.
4: I would I would appreciate it. I mean, you know, I think all of that information, I think, is relevant. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and then my last question is really around, it's more like operations, so I, obviously I know um, we're not really here to make recommendations quite yet, but really just having a discussion. Um, but in, in the next meeting, we're supposed to have, you know, again, some recommendations. So I guess I want to hear from staff. Um, I know you're looking at some potential recommendations. I, I do, you know, I'm looking at this graph that you provided, which again is extremely helpful. Um, you know, I, I know you had mentioned um, there's strong support for the removal of the zero dollar rate, um, you know policy Um, you know I see that there's you know this I guess my question is you know what is the city, what is staff expecting from us in that next meeting around proposed you know options Um, and you know how how you know is there I know this is very objective right for you as staff but maybe a little more direction I, I do know that we have the data from the analysis that you did and that's helpful um, maybe a little more dire- direction, um, just to prepare ourselves for the next meeting on kind of what you would like to see from commissioners, would be helpful.
10: Yeah, during the next meeting, um, we intend to have a, a full, um, you know, set of recommendations on what an ordinance could look like and the reasoning be- behind why we choose a specific option. Um, that could be a combination of things that were presented today. It could be, you know, additional ideas that we get between now and then. Um, and so, I think for for us as staff, you know, for for the commissioners to understand the the, the report, um, the feasibility analysis, and you know, having a good understanding of of, of these materials in the draft report will be, I think, um, just the most important thing moving into the preliminary recommendations, so that you all have. Um, the knowledge that you need to, to make make this, you know help us make the right decision.
4: And just to be clear, it's um, coming back in October for preliminary recommendations to staff, and then going to council. Are we making yes. recommendations to council for preliminary?
10: We will bring preliminary recommendations to um, Planning and Design Commission. We will also be you know meeting with our stakeholder groups at that time and when we bring it to commission we'll then follow um, to council, get their input as well and then make revisions um, based on feedback and bring back final recommendations with that input um, and hopefully from there bring back a final ordinance that's based on that, those final recommendations.
4: Wonderful, those are all my questions, thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Macias Reed. Next we have Commissioner Caden.
14: Thank you, Chair. I, I have a, a lot of general comments uh, on this so so bear with me here um, I completely agree with the, the six draft policy objectives that um, that are outlined in the report I do have some concerns with with the approach overall and the policy options um, but before I, I talk about those I just wanted to kind of take a step back um, talk a little bit about the, the current housing climate it, you know we got a lot of information on this today but um, it seems like there's some good news, but there's, you know, it's looking a little bit precarious in terms of what the current climate is. Um, you know, we've we've heard a lot about how the city and the region has had a lot of success in recent years on housing production um, in terms of units actually completed. It seems like we've been on this steady increase since 2015. A lot of that multifamily, as you noted in your presentation, a lot of that dense multifamily downtown. Um, Regionally, we're at a 20-year high for apartments under construction. Um, and the result of that is that starting in June of this year, uh, the region saw the first average rent decline since 2010. So a ton of multifamily units coming online over the course of five years just now starting to see uh, rents starting to come down. Um, we do have an amazing nonprofit affordable developer community. A lot of hard work from, from city staff, of course, has seen... Um, I think incredible progress on the production of affordable units in the city of Sacramento. Um, we heard in the annual progress report item a few months ago from Greta that this, this year were 56% of permits um, in 2022 were affordable units, over 1,200 units. Um, that 56% affordable proportion is really quite remarkable. In 2022, statewide, I think we were at 20% or so. Sac County unincorporated 20%. Mm-hmm. Folsom in 2022, 11%, Roseville, 6%. So you know we could always be better, but the city of Sacramento, I think, deserves a lot of credit for what it's already doing on affordable housing. Um, I think there's a lot of causes for concern on production, which I think are important to mention. In terms of the overall units permitted, um, so permitted, right, not constructed, that's the leading indicator, a couple years ahead of the completed units. We've seen two straight years of declines. in that APR item, again, 33% reduction in 2022. We don't know where the 2023 numbers are going to shake out here, but I think uh, it's not looking good. I think um, looking at some of the DOF numbers statewide, we're on pace for about a 23% reduction um, uh, from 2022 to 2023. So, you know, interest rates are definitely playing a role there, of course. Um, And, you know, we've seen a lot of Projects in Sacramento um, that have that have kind of stalled as a result of that. We I know that it was part of the discussion today. It's worth noting, right? Utility fees are going up. Those were flat for a long time. Those are likely going up, so those fees are are kind of increasing the cost for for housing in the city as well. So you know, thanks for humoring me on that context. But I I think it's important to keep in mind that that big picture, and and that is you know for me we've made a lot of progress on affordable production, on overall production, but there's these big structural forces that are kind of making it more challenging um, to finance really all types of housing in the city, um, which I think have the, the potential to, to erode some of that progress. So we need, we need to just be super careful when we talk about um, you know, adding costs to building new housing. Um, and, and that's what inclusionary zoning is, right? It's a, it's a tax on new housing. I think you know, we can be honest about that. It's for a good cause. Um, if it still you know, gets built, there's these tremendous benefits to creating deed-restricted affordable units in all buildings. Um, there's, there's sort of like neighborhood integration benefits, of course, but you know, at the end of the day, housing production is just, it's thousands of little math problems, right? And when we say we need to subsidize 15% of units as affordable in a project, and then we don't offer any, any public money, um, that subsidy needs to get made up in some way, and it gets made up for by higher rents than the other 85% of units. And if it can't be made up, um, lenders won't lend, projects don't get built, um, and I think everyone suffers, right? Just to reiterate this point, 90% of lower income households in California live in non-deed restricted units. And you know, a mandatory inclusionary program that produces, let's say, two, 300 units a year, it's probably not gonna make a, a massive dent uh, in that number anytime soon. So, you know, the average rent, rents for market rate units um, matter for, for everybody, and when they go up, everyone suffers, especially those 90% of households, lower income households that aren't lucky enough to to win the lottery to, to get one of these de-restricted units. So, uh, again, I'm, I'm completely um, supportive of the policy goals that are outlined in the report. Um, I 100% support increasing funding for affordable housing. Um, I'd really like to see the city explore All opportunities for for broad-based taxes to subsidize more affordable housing Um, I know there's lots of things being considered right now progressive real estate transfer fee a parcel tax a bond I'd I'd be supportive of all of those I'd love to see a fully publicly funded inclusionary program but I do have concerns about all of the proposals in the document because they're they're effectively exclusively taxing new housing to, to kind of fund that subsidy which makes an already difficult development math problem, I think, a little bit more difficult. Um, so all of that said, uh, if we are picking from this, this list of potential requirements, I, I would prefer option one or two. I know you're not necessarily looking for direct feedback on that, but um, I, I think allowing for that in lieu fee and that flexibility um, is important. Uh, I think the last two options, that vary the the fees by neighborhood based on submarket or based on whether it's in a high opportunity area. Um, they're interesting ideas. I think they have great intentions. I do worry that we would make it diff- it would be difficult to structure that type of thing and and keep it up to date in a really kind of um, ever changing market. Um, and I think it could have unintended consequences of actually pushing development towards neighborhoods that would have effectively like lower required subsidies, um, which I think could actually increase displacement risk. You could actually have the opposite um, intended effect of of that particular policy. On page four, under the ordinance implementation options, the staff report mentions setting the minimum threshold um, at which the ordinance would apply, and I think it mentions five or 10. I would strongly urge us to set that threshold at 10 or higher. Um, I think setting it at less than 10 You know, really could undermine a lot of the missing middle work that we're doing with the general plan update. I'd even like to see it set at 20, um, which is what the city of Portland has. Um, I I think the idea of a phase in or a ramp up for those new fees uh, is probably a very good idea as well, regardless of what we end up deciding. Um, You know, of course, any of these options, the the devil's gonna be in the details on this stuff. So the in lieu fee amounts, the inclusionary percentage, the, the depth of affordability. Um, the minimum unit threshold, all of that is gonna you know, really dictate the extent to which this stuff is possible. I just ask that staff be extremely uh, mindful of the impact uh, to overall production and um, in the eventual preliminary recommendations that, that you'll be uh, doing later this fall. So those are all my comments. Um, sorry for hogging the mic.
9: Appreciate
1: your comments, Commissioner Caden. Next, we have Commissioner Lamas.
15: Thank you, Chair. Um, I had a question from the representative from H- SHRA. If you may come up. Um, just trying to get a, a better understanding about how this housing trust fund works, how it's administered, um, how applicants can get access to the money. Are there um, you know, max awards? Are there income thresholds that you provide you know, for uh, AMI levels? You know, what's the lowest, what's the highest you go? Um, and what does the compliance piece look like for? I don't know if it's specifically for multifamily, or does some of that can some of that money go towards single-family too? Like, and I know it's it's pretty complex, but if you can just kind of summar, summarize it a little bit, um, just to provide a little bit of context, that'd be helpful.
16: Sure. Um, so um, we also provide a report uh, every year uh, to the city council, which we can also make um, available to the planning commission if they'd like it. It's a uh, report on the the housing trust fund ordinance the city has and the mixed income housing ordinance every year and what the funds are being used for. The housing trust fund ordinance that we're talking about tonight is the, um, or you're talking about, is a fee on commercial development. Um, That fee is collected by the city and then um, it is put into, um, given to SHRA to create affordable housing development. Or affordable housing with those funds that's the actual housing trust fund ordinance um, the, the logic behind it is as you build more um, commercial um, businesses uh, retail office whatever you're creating a need for uh, affordable workers to work in those so if you open a restaurant maybe you need you know waitresses cooks things like that and they need a place to live so that's why the, um, the fee is there um, the mixed income housing ordinance similar is as, as you know as you're talking about tonight. A sort of a fee on uh, residential development, those fees are actually put together in one pot of money and um, the city collects those with permits and then sends them over to SHRA. We in turn have um, uh, lending policies that have been adopted by the city council um, and they are updated from time to time. Um, we advertise those funds to be available um, two to three times a year. Um, it is an application process. Um, they, um, the, the funding levels are dictated by the ordinance, but I think both the Housing Trust Fund and Mixed Income Housing Ordinance is 80% or less of area median income. Um, although the policies that the City Council have given us for lending um, we'll focus more on 60% or less of area median income, so we can go above 60 according to the ordinance, but we don't very often. Most of the projects are 60%. Anywhere from 30% to 60% of area median income. Um, affordable housing developers will come, they'll put their application in, they are ranked according to the, the um, priority. And then um, if, a, if a project is selected for financing, usually it's, it is leveraging all those um, funding sources that we talked about earlier from the state, HCD, um, tax credits. Those projects are brought before City Council for approval um, and the Sacramento Housing Redevelopment Commission, which Commissioner Boyd was member of for many years. Um, then uh, we make their, their structures, loans. There are loans to the affordable housing developer. They're usually um, 40-year loans. Um, and then um, the the units are regulated. Um, the ordinance we're talking about tonight, the units are regulated, deed restricted for 30 years. So SHRA's, um, will is responsible for making sure we go out um, the developments annually, making sure that the uh, appropriate rents are being charged, um, that people are not being overcharged, um, uh, the right you know family size is in the correct unit. Um, we also do a physical inspection of those units to making sure the developer and the property manager are maintaining those. So we do that for 30 years, and if they're not um, meeting their um, requirements for like income qualifications, we have the legal ability to take action to you know, change property management companies or things like that. And we do that all on behalf of the
15: city. Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, So I have a follow-up question. Um, You said there was uh, mixed funds into this one pot. Um, Is that kind of broken out as part of the um, analysis on behalf of the mixed income housing artists?
16: We track them separately, so we know from the city which which fees are coming from residential development, which fees are coming from commercial development. While they put in one pot, we, we, we um, track them and report out on them separately. So, when Greta's presentation, she was talking about the mixed income um, funds.
15: Okay, perfect.
16: Thank you for that. Appreciate it.
15: I had one just comment to the city, um, and it um, just wanted to out there that you know like I've, all my colleagues have said it, it is a complicated issue um, as I was reading you know through this it even all the case studies everyone there's so many factors to, to consider so many projections we're I mean, we're kind of looking at the market right now but we're really thinking into the future and it's really hard to gauge um, and I know the city like my uh, commissioner Caden said has done a lot to try to encourage uh, further development and so I think one thing that could be helpful um, in the next report is to include some of those efforts, um, like the city of Sacramento being the first jurisdiction to get the pro-housing designation and you know things that are related but not directly tied to this mixed income housing ordinance that are um, trying to help um, balance this consideration. Um, I think that'll be helpful um, as we, we look to make a decision on how to move forward or, or support or recommendation.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Lamas. Next, we have Commissioner Chase.
9: Thank you, Chair. Uh, just kind of a few comments. I think um, one is relative to, uh, related to the in-lieu fee uh, that you, you know, we're looking at. <clears throat> is there? I've had many developers as clients over the decades, and uh, a lot of them are really good people, but they are sensitive to the dollar. They have to look at returns. Is there a point at which or is there a way to determine at what point how high the in lieu fee could go before these developers begin to look at other jurisdictions uh, in the region uh, to do a project? No answer expected tonight, but I think that's worth, you know, is there a range in there that, that should be considered? Uh, another question, this I think is, is back to uh, redevelopment. Uh, we. Or SHRA. I, you know, I know back probably 2012 when we lost redevelopment um, by um, Governor Brown, and uh, lots of respect because he has appointed me as Deputy State Architect, so I, I won't say anything bad. But we did lose it, and we were kind of promised, that, I think, at that point that something would come back eventually to replace it. Uh, it hasn't, to my understanding. Uh, was SHRA the, the the vehicle that that handled or administered uh, redevelopment uh, back in the day?
16: SHRA was the um, the entity that um, uh, managed the redevelopment areas and the redevelopment funds. With the demise of redevelopment, uh, though, um, we still retained the um, sort of the. Some of the some of the housing functions that were related to it, but the others we did not. But yes, that and that was a huge um, source of affordable housing because 20 and so, then later on 30 percent of all um, redevelopment dollars had to go to affordable housing. So it was a it was huge. I don't you know millions of dollars were going into the city of Sacramento um, from those funds for affordable housing, and it was a huge loss.
9: So I guess a question: SHRA, the city, anyone? Has there been any? Thought or any effort on the part of legislative advocacy to begin to look at bringing something like that back?
16: Yes, actually. I mentioned um, the city-county affordable housing plan that we're working on bringing back um, in uh, October, and that will be one of the recommendations that we're we're, going to make, that some more effort be um, put to sort of redevelopment 2.0, possibly.
9: That's good to hear. Thank you. Um, and I think my final comment, it's, it's, it's a comment. There's no answer to this one either. Um, the issue of you know, developers, we've got this separation of market rate developers and affordable developers. And, and they are different entities. They, have, they play by different rules and different funding mechanisms. But it reminds me years ago, uh, again, back in private sector architecture, um, residential developers that I was working uh, with, as mixed-use development was coming into consideration, they were frightened to death. They, I can't do anything any retail on the bottom of my you know. Res- I don't know that. That's that's not me. I just do residential. Well, I think over the years we've certainly seen a shift where they've realized, oh, that's where the market is. Um, I'm wondering if there is you know going forward any ability to merge or combine or something you know affordable developers to market-rate developers to begin to address that that need of uh, bringing them together. So just a thought. But thank you for your, for your input and your work. I yield, Chair, thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Chase. We have a few more comments from commissioners here. Um, we are gonna take a break after this, um, but really appreciate the dialogue here um, tonight on this important issue. Next, we'll go to Commissioner Buckley.
8: Thank you, Chair. Um, I will be brief to get us to our break. Um, I would just say that you know this conversation feels very familiar. Um, you know, I was doing advocacy here in Sacramento around the time That we were reconsidering um, our reaction to the Palmer decision as a city Uh, the county was reconsidering um, the inclusionary zoning ordinance and um, which was which was an avant-garde ordinance Um, and we were really proud of it and then the recession hit the Palmer case came down and we had to reconsider some things and I would just say that um, you know I I really appreciate the feasibility study. I appreciate all the considerations that go into this. And I certainly don't want to create a policy that um, puts a grinding halt to Marguerite Development in Sacramento. But but that said, I mean, staff has done a good job of laying out some values um, that should guide our decision here. And some of these proposals line up with those values better than others. And while we're considering things like the feasibility study, I think it's really important for us to consider the values that got us to this decision-making point. And too often, the feasibility study just rules. Can't do it, proved it's, proved it's impossible. Values, we'll figure out that later. And that's something I just really would encourage staff to, to keep considering how this works into those values Um, We're always choosing, um, when we're making public policy decisions, um, different avenues that have different impacts on folks. Um, You know, in this particular instance, we've heard a lot about the impact that we'd have on market rate development. Um, But the goal of inclusionary, as Commissioner Chase lifted up, is to make sure that as communities grow, as development happens. Um, as as development happens in places where there might be displacement. I'd argue that one of these does, doesn't have, that ha- doesn't have the hashtag next to displacement actually would be anti-displacement. Um, that there's affordable housing made for folks um, to continue to live in those communities and then be the beneficiaries of the growth in those communities and the new resources in those communities. So um, I just don't want the feasibility study to dominate the conversation. I think you've done a good job in your report and not and not letting that happen um but i know we've had a lot of discussion about that tonight and i just wanted to say that
2: out loud that's all thank you chair
1: thank you commissioner buckley commissioner
2: thompson thank you chair um i'm new to the commission so first off i want to say thank you for a clear and visually understandable presentation uh, very much appreciate it i want to Mention, I recognize that since I'm new to this conversation overall, uh, my comments might be a little naive, or questions might be a little naive, and I'll own that. Um, but the first would be uh, within. I saw all the 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 pre the precedents projects that you guys looked at. Um, we've got ones that are within the area, and then we've got Portland and a couple that are outside. But I wanted to know if we did any research into the work. That that Angie Brooks and Brooks and Scarpa is doing down in the LA area, specifically with current housing ordinances and mixed and low income. They've done a lot of really substantial work in very recent years. So I was just curious to know if that was included in your look, because um, it is at least California. And then the second was um, although I am an architect, my background is in behavioral analysis, uh, and I noticed that a lot of the incentives that we're utilizing throughout this whole thing are could be seen more as a punishment, but we could call them a negative reinforcement methodology, which I think is fantastic. It's a very effective one, um, but I am curious along that lines, and then going back to actually a comment that uh, Commissioner Buckley mentioned about utilizing things other than cost and money as incentivizing um, and recognizing, this is on the architect end, that pulling these projects together, the cost part, which is that upfront piece, is a huge driver, but the cost part also has other implications such as time, I believe, which was mentioned, Um, and is there, and actually I'm looking over at the attorney on the other side, I don't even know if this is feasible, but are there other alternate methods of incentivizing Um, pulling these pieces in that don't necessarily relate to a fee, which then just continues to contribute to the escalating cost. Can we reduce the option of cost through incentivizing shorter times for things or um, assistance through the city to get through permitting processes, to get through uh, inspections, all those other elements that help a developer get into their places as soon as possible. That was all I have.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Thompson. Does Steph wanna to respond to any of your comments or questions? Yes, um, we did not look in depth at the
10: City of LA, um, but we can certainly um, take a look. And um, I just wanted to to um, note that we do have um, some shorter um, permitting timelines for affordable housing projects. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to flag is that in this report, uh, in the feasibility analysis, we also include our zero-dollar rate for affordable housing. Um, so any of the 10%, 5%, um, you know, feasibility analysis, the those units aren't paying that that um, the impact fees that are listed in our zero-dollar rate program. So that's just one thing that, when you um, commissioner asked about. Um, subsidies and ways that we can reduce costs. um, That is something that we included in the analysis.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Next we have Commissioner Boyd.
3: I won't touch anything. Hey, it's on. Um, And to that, I will be very, uh, very brief here. I just want to ask uh, uh, either uh, to the city and or to uh, Christine Um, What is the cap on the uh, housing trust fund and or if there isn't a cap what has historically been the dollar level where the, the maximum dollar level of the housing trust fund here in Sacramento?
16: So the Housing housing Trust Fund or the Mixed Income Housing Ordinance, or both? Because there are two different ordinances. But this ordinance, should we stick with this ordinance? Okay, Um, this ordinance really varies on, um, um, it's not, this ordinance hasn't been, um, let me just say it, it really varies on development. When the, there's a lot of development going on in the city of Sacramento, a lot of fees are generated and a lot come to SHRA. I, this off the top of my head, I think last year we only received, it was less than a million dollars, um, but I think the highest we received in a, in a good year, and when there's lots of developments going, going on, up to $3 million. So that's sort of the range of what we're talking about for this ordinance every year.
3: If you um, hold for just a second, I appreciate that. Unless I have it wrong, um, the City of Sacramento's Housing Trust Fund, for um, to which SHRA pulls from. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, is a $10 million cap, and from that um, $10 million, other city functions have pulled from it, and it was just what my time frame may be off last year, or the year before, where the city put back that those matter of fact, um, was that two years ago. I believe so, uh, put back the monies into that housing trust fund to which uh, um, um, SHRA used partial uh, some of those monies for a couple of builds in Oak Park. I believe there was four or five different um, builds. It was at the time when I was still on the, uh, uh, I believe, on the commission. But Mike, so kind of twisted you a little bit. So
16: I think I, if I'm following you, Commissioner, yes. So the city has been very, uh, the city council has made a lot of other dollars besides this ordinance that we're talking about available for affordable housing in the last few years. Um, and I think what you're thinking of is they put, um, I believe it was $10 million into uh, the address is 4995 Stockton Boulevard. It's a Mercy Housing development, and they just changed the name, and I can't remember what it is. But uh, yes, 10 million dollars. The city did that. It was a measure you general funds were used, although the generic name is housing trust fund too. Yes, yeah, so that was one of the, so there's so there. This ordinance funds quite a bit of our you know affordable housing um, dollars that are available, but there are sometimes other funds like that that come to us from the city. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Chair.
1: Thank you very much. I don't see any other hands raised by my fellow commissioners. Um, Greta, Matt, David, Christina, thank you so much for all the work you've done here today. This is a very big and complex issue. I echo a lot of the comments that my fellow commissioners have made and appreciate the ideas that were brought forward here today. I think there are still a lot of questions um, that need to be answered. Uh, The commission here developing an ordinance going to have a lot of impacts in the future. And um, as was mentioned, and I agree, um, our uh, goal, policy objectives and goals I agree with and are very, very important, and I'm glad that that's sort of our, um, our, our North Star here today. Um, I do want to encourage the representatives from the building industry and the Downtown Partnership, um, if they haven't already, by September 8th, um, I think the comments are due, if that's correct. Um, and for members of the public to please also weigh in by going to the website, uh, City of Sacramento, um, and also submitting public comments there. Um, again uh, for me I think um, given all the all all the discussion here um, it is going to be important to maintain some flexibility and some optionality Um, we do have a good challenge ahead ahead of us here Um, with that I this item does not require a vote Um, it's comments have been received and filed. I appreciate um, staff um, and everyone's time here this evening. Um, So with that, um, we are going to take a short break. Um, We'll take a 10-minute break and come back at 7.45 p.m. this evening. Um, Thank you very much.
0: Um, 30 seconds on the clock to restart the live feed. Chair, we're ready to continue when you
13: are.
1: Thank you, very much. Thank you very much. Welcome back. After our break, we are now on item number four. This is the draft existing building electrification strategy file ID 2023-00574. We have a staff presentation by Laura Teller, Associate Planner. Laura, whenever you're ready. Is it possible to put the presentation up? We're gonna, okay. Sure. We're going to hold for just one moment while we work out some IT issues. It'll just be a few more moments while we get IT to have the presentation up on the screen. Thank you. So while we're waiting for IT, just a reminder for commissioners that we have a curfew at 9 30 p.m. If we want to go past 9:30 p.m. We need to make a motion and have a unanimous decision to approve to continue to a, di- a time certain this evening. So it's currently 10 minutes to 8 o'clock um, and we have one more item ahead of us uh, on the discussion calendar. Right now we're live and running. Thank you so much to IT staff. Laura, whenever you're ready.
18: Good evening, Chair and Commissioners. My name is Laura Teller, and I'm an associate planner and the staff project lead for the existing building electrification strategy. I'm joined this evening by several other members of our project team, as well as two folks um, have joined us virtually. Uh, we're really happy to be here this evening to give you an update on the public review draft of the existing building electrification strategy. So as you know, The city has set a goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2045. Um, In order to do this, Sacramento's building stock, including all of our existing buildings, must be all electric. According to our 2016 greenhouse gas emissions inventory, 37% of our city's emissions come from buildings. In June 2021, city council adopted a resolution directing staff to develop the existing building electrification strategy to serve as a roadmap to reduce and eliminate emissions from existing buildings. As you saw in our presentation on the climate action and adaptation plan, building electrification is an essential step to reaching our goal of zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. As you know, in Sacramento we're served by SMUD, which is a publicly owned electric utility. SMUD has a plan to produce zero carbon electricity by 2030, so transitioning our buildings from gas to electricity will reduce and eventually eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from buildings. The city has two main efforts related to electrification. The new building electrification ordinance, which is outlined on the left, was adopted in 2021, readopted in 2022, and went into effect for buildings three stories or less in January 2023. However, the new building electrification ordinance has been impacted by a court case between the California Restaurant Association and the city of Berkeley. The city continues to promote all electric new construction as directed by our council and our sustainability goals. However, we will not currently preclude the development of mixed fuel buildings. Our focus, however, this evening is on existing buildings. At the direction of city council, we're developing a strategy to ensure an equitable transition to all electric existing buildings. This strategy consists of a set of long-term policies to transition our buildings to electric over time. The draft strategy is out for public review now and will be finalized following adoption of the general plan and the climate action and adaptation plan. So what is building electrification? It means replacing gas appliances in our homes, workplaces and other buildings with energy efficient electric appliances. Common gas appliances are furnaces for space heating, water heaters, stoves and clothes dryers. And there are energy efficient, high performance electric appliances available for all of these uses. These electric retrofits typically happen when gas appliances stop working. There are many reasons the city is working on existing building electrification. Greenhouse gas emission reductions is a major reason, but there are many other co-benefits. Electrification can improve community health through improved indoor air quality, increase energy affordability, improve resilience and safety of buildings. And serves as an opportunity to invest in historically underinvested communities. Electrification is an issue that touches different groups very differently, so we've engaged with a wide range of stakeholders to help inform our strategy development process. This is not an exhaustive list, uh, but gives you a sense for some of the groups who've helped shape our strategy. In particular, I'd like to highlight our partnership with Sacramento Act. Uh, we had the opportunity to work with them in a learning cohort convened through RMI and partnered with them to convene a a range of focus groups and workshops throughout our strategy development process. We also met with housing advocates, environmental justice and climate advocates, um, in particular 350 Sacramento, restaurant stakeholders, neighborhood associations, PBIDs and Chambers of Commerce, the Sacramento Inclusive Economic Development Collaborative, the Sacramento Association of Realtors, labor unions as well as other jurisdictions pursuing electrification policies from whom we've learned a lot. We kicked off this project in February 2022, and we spent our first phase of outreach introducing the concept of electrification and working to hone a set of equity criteria that we're using to guide our strategy. I'll get into those more in a moment, um, but I wanted to review some of what we heard from our community members. A few highlights here, Uh, we heard from folks that they really wanted to see a tailored approach for residential and commercial buildings. They pose different challenges and they need to be treated differently. This is reflected in our strategy, which is divided by building type. We also heard from folks uh, about cultural concerns regarding elimination of gas stoves, questions about grid readiness and resilience, particularly following our intense winter storms, and overall interest in support, both financial and logistical, uh, as folks make this transition. There are more details on outreach um, in Chapter 2 of the strategy document, and we're also happy to answer any questions you might have. That's very small, I'm sorry. As part of our initial work on the strategy, we wanted to get an understanding of how our buildings here in Sacramento use energy. We worked with a consultant, Vistar Energy, uh, to get this information through comprehensive building modeling. Uh, We worked, um, I'm sorry, this graph uh, shows energy use for buildings in Sacramento. The blue portion of the bar represents electricity and the orange portion represents gas There's a very small gray portion on some of those um, which represents other fuels So as you can see single unit residential buildings um, use overall the most energy and in in particular the most gas of any building type in Sacramento uh, followed by multi-unit residential full-service restaurants and warehouses So this information was very helpful in getting an understanding of where the greatest opportunities for greenhouse gas emissions reductions are uh, and framing our highest priority actions. Another main goal of our modeling exercise was to get an understanding of utility bill impacts uh, for electrification of homes in Sacramento. Um, We have some really encouraging results here. Modeling shows that 100% of single family homes are projected to see immediate on-bill savings Uh, with full home electrification, with a median $680 a year savings for homes without solar and $1,500 per year for homes with solar. These results are based on modeling done in 2022. Um, Gas prices are projected to increase over time, and we do expect these savings to increase as well. To make this information accessible to the public, we worked with Vistar to customize the zero home platform for Sacramento. So any single unit resident in Sacramento can use Zero Home to get a custom energy model uh, of their home. You can see estimated cost of upgrades, projected utility bill savings, um, available incentives and payback periods for these electrification upgrades. So we really encourage individuals to check this out to see what electrification would look like for their individual home. We really think building electrification is a great opportunity for Sacramento, uh, but it's important we're working to provide an equitable transition for all people in our city to receive these benefits. Throughout the strategy development process, we got some really great feedback from the community about what equity criteria should be included in the strategy. The goal of our strategy is to advance the health, safety, comfort, climate, and economic benefits of electrification for all people in Sacramento through affordable and reliable energy, so making sure people can afford their utility bills, easy and affordable installation, holistic building improvements, uh, really seeing electrification as an opportunity to improve other elements of a building's condition, such as improving the thermal envelope uh, and resolving safety concerns. Culturally competent outreach and education, this is a really complex issue and it touches different groups really differently. Our strategy also uh, supports city and regional efforts to avoid displacement for households and businesses, uh, prioritizes low income and under-resourced communities and small businesses, and supports the just transition of our workforce and high-quality green job opportunities. We are in a really unique moment for building decarbonization. There are very significant investments at the local, state, and federal level to support people making the switch, um, and really giving support to those who need it the most. Uh, We really have an opportunity here in Sacramento to develop a strategy that's customized to the needs of our community um, And positions us to you know help individuals connect to these significant sources of funding So how do we do it? How do we get there? Uh, We want to talk about our high-level policy framework Um, Before we talk about this. I do want to remind everyone that this is a strategy document so in order to enact any requirements the strategy suggests we'll need to develop and pass ordinances later on down the road. Um, I also want to highlight the fact that there are a number of factors in building electrification that fall sort of outside of our control. So we're focusing on tools that are in our toolbox as a local jurisdiction tonight. Um, I do want to touch briefly again on the um, court case uh, 2019. The California Restaurant Association sued the city of Berkeley for their new building electrification ordinance. A District Court judge found in favor of the City of Berkeley, but the decision was overturned by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in April Um, The Ninth Circuit found that Berkeley's ordinance is preempted by the Federal Energy Policy and Conservation Act or EPCA This ruling has an impact on new building electrification ordinances in other cities in the Ninth Circuit, which includes Sacramento EPCA and this preemption also impacts potential approaches for existing buildings such as an ordinance requiring gas appliances to be replaced with all electric alternatives Um, the city of Berkeley has filed a petition for an en banc hearing um, but the Ninth Circuit is not obligated to rehear the case we should know more information in the coming weeks and months about whether they'll be rehearing it and we're continuing to follow this um, and its implications in consultation with the city attorney's office So that's a big preface to what I'm about to say so With all of that said, uh, so this again is divided by residential and commercial buildings. So I'm gonna talk first about residential. When I say residential, I mean single unit residential and small multi-unit residential. So things like duplexes and triplexes that use that sort of single unit type equipment. Um, So in order to maximize the useful life of existing appliances, our near-term strategy focuses on electrification at time of replacement for existing residential buildings. So as I mentioned, a straight ahead time of replacement requirement is not currently feasible. So our strategy outlines a flexible set of potential ordinance pathways. We also outline a range of actions to leverage partnerships and maximize incentives for Sacramento residents um, as they make this transition to all electric appliances. So here are some of the options for ordinances we've outlined in our strategy. Staff will proceed based on direction from council and available legal mechanisms. These options include developing a requirement that central air conditioners be replaced with appliances that can provide both heating and cooling, most commonly an all-electric heat pump, an EPCA compliant flexible path reach code requiring additions or alterations to exceed the state building energy efficiency standards, a requirement that gas lines be capped and or all-electric requirements if um, feasible. This, I will note uh, that the state is also contemplating some of these mechanisms through updates to the building code. Um, So we're continuing to monitor that context as we make further staff recommendations. So with residential buildings, equipment is all relatively similar. Um, On the commercial side, things are a bit different. What we've heard from folks who own and use commercial buildings um, is that they're really unique and they need to be treated as such. Um, So our approach to commercial buildings reflects this. Uh, We are contemplating a benchmarking and building performance standard program that would require buildings to meet greenhouse gas emissions performance targets by specific deadlines. This process would start with energy benchmarking, which is data collection and reporting on how buildings use energy. All of this would also start with the largest buildings in the city. Um, Over time, the allowed emissions would decrease with the goal of reaching zero by 2045. So there are Many specialized end uses, which we believe are best tackled with a performance-based approach in commercial buildings, Um, however, rooftop-packaged HVAC units, which is a furnace and an air conditioner packaged together in a single unit, um, are typically cost-effective and straightforward to replace with an all-electric heat pump. Therefore, we're contemplating either recommending or requiring uh, this replacement at time of replacement, um, time of air conditioner replacement, excuse me. I also want to note that this is being contemplated at the state level um, for units 65,000 BTUs and smaller for commercial buildings so we're tracking that very closely. Um, Regardless it's really critical uh, that the city provides information to building owners to ensure that AC units are replaced with heat pumps and not conventional AC or these mixed fuel package units um, to meet our decarbonization goals. So in addition to this high-level policy framework of potential requirements, the strategy outlines a set of supportive actions designed around our equity criteria. So these include actions to support affordable and reliable energy, holistic building improvements, um, workforce education, easy and affordable installation, advocacy, again, sort of dealing with that broader landscape of building uh, decarbonization, as well as community engagement. In addition, as directed by city council staff are also advancing near term pilots for electrification focused on low income residents and small businesses. These are largely funded by grants and through our strong partnerships. There are numerous initiatives underway. I want to highlight just two that the city is directly supporting. Um, First, thanks to competitive grants that we've secured, we're funding electrification of low income homes in the Stockton Boulevard area in partnership with SMUD and Habitat for Humanity. Two homes are receiving full home electrification, including solar PV and battery storage, um, paired with home repairs for safety and code compliance. In addition, 20 plus heat pumps uh, will be installed in low income homes, Um, so these could be heat pump HVAC and or heat pump water heaters. Um, And these are critically being paired with our home rehabilitation investments um, to ensure improvement in housing quality um, and, and that, Residents really reap the benefits of electrification through increased efficiency Um, These investments are also advancing the stability of existing neighborhoods demonstrating our commitment to equitable electrification Um, second I want to highlight an investment um, of Electrification of small businesses in a forthcoming grant program a million dollars of the city's ARPA funding um, is being dedicated to a grant for small businesses on Northgate Boulevard Um, This will support an array of electrification, um, retrofit improvements, and also uh, supporting businesses with COVID-19 recovery. This work is being delivered in partnership with SMUD and their business programming, as well as the Northgate Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. In addition, there are other neighborhood electrification pilots recently completed or underway, including a residential electrification work in the Gardenland neighborhood through an initiative led by SMUD, local residents, and local CBOs, and a forthcoming residential electrification project in the Meadowview neighborhood with federal funding. I wanna touch very briefly on staffing resources required for implementation of our strategy. The Community Development Department, the Office of Climate Action and Sustainability, and SMUD are all key partners in implementation. Um, Ordinance development and initial supporting actions can be completed using existing staff resources. However, our outreach suggests the need for additional support, particularly for our more vulnerable communities, to make this switch, which would require additional staffing. Benchmarking and building performance standards would also require additional staff. Our estimate based on conversations with other jurisdictions and the estimate of the number of covered buildings that we would have in such a program um, is that we would need three to seven additional staff to fully implement a building performance standards program. So to close, I just want to cover our next steps. As I mentioned, our public review draft is, as you know, out now uh, for a three-month public review. Um, So like for the CAP and the general plan, we're using an online platform, um, Conveyo, to collect public input. So folks can comment directly on the document itself um, and they can see what other people are saying. Uh, Individuals are also welcome to email us with comments at electrification at cityofsacramento.org. Um, and we anticipate bringing the strategy to city council following adoption of the general plan and the climate action plan in 2024. Um, in the meantime, we'll be doing ongoing outreach in coordination with community members and other partners. So this concludes my presentation. I'm happy to take any questions you might have. Um, again, I'm joined uh, by our project team here in person and we also have Steve Johns from SMUD and Ryan Gardner from our consultant team uh, joining us online. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Laura. We are going to open up the public comment period um, to receive some public comments. Um, Checking online, we did have, we have two public comments that came in today between 7 a.m. and 4.48 p.m. this afternoon. One that was neutral, one that's in support. Um, So now we'll go on to our public commenters in the room. Um, Clerk, are there any folks in the room who want to speak on this issue? Thank you, Chair. I have no speakers
0: with their hands raised and no speaker slips on this item.
1: Thank you very much. We will now close a public comment period and uh, bring the discussion back to the dais. Commissioners, any questions, comments, or further discussion here today on this item? We'll first go to Commissioner Macias-Reed. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Chair. So um, good to see everyone here,
4: uh, familiar faces and some new faces. Um, again, great work. Uh, I was on the commission when we uh, passed the uh, uh, new home electrification ordinance. So we obviously, some of us that are sitting on the, uh, the dais here have went through that process. Um, I, there's so much to say. I will try to take, not take up too much time. Um, obviously, I do know that you guys embarked on this and it was supposed to be an 18 month outreach program and a process and I appreciate all of the stakeholders that you've engaged. I wear many hats in the community um, including sitting on the habitat board and having a construction company and working for a PBID and so this is so relevant to everything that I do and we could talk about it all night but I will not do that Um, but some of the things that I I wanted to talk about is obviously I've been very supportive of of electrification and meeting our climate goals Um, it's critical it's important Um, and SMUD has some very um, you know 2030 uh, very uh, robust goals. So um, with that, I did want to mention a few things. And and I I work with SMUD. I actually just, you know, we work with them often. I appreciate the SMUD Shine grants that are available to community members and PBIDs to help businesses with, you know, with um, electrification pr- improvements so I'm glad to see that there are more programs happening we want to continue to see that investment from smud help um, I know you know in the Franklin district our PBID has um, helped a lot over 16 businesses in the last year um, do energy efficiency upgrades including um, exterior and interior lighting um, so again you know uh, you know when we were talking earlier about housing and construction costs and everything's so expensive um, you know I have a construction company, and we can't just blame contractors. We need to discuss, you know, when we create ordinances, um, and, and I, I will talk, too, not, not maybe not everybody knows about Title 24. It's our state energy code. You were talking about energy updates. Codes change every three years. Um, so as a contractor, you have to keep up with those ever-changing codes, and sometimes with those code updates with just in this last year with Title 24 upgrades, we had some substantial changes that were, you know, meant to address our climate goals for new, you know, to, to build new, um, you know, I'm thinking really um, in terms of how we build the structures of our homes to keep, you know, keep the energy and the heat in, um, and and keep less of it from going out, right? So, you know, those things cost more money. Um, all everything that, and again, I, I'm supportive of our goals, and and I think the the upside to this is that we need to continue to yes, all of this is going to cost more money. Um, a contractor can't take that cost on. So the, the homeowner has to pay for that. So um, obviously, these incentive programs, these grant programs that we have, are going to be critical. They are going to be necessary to this work. We can't do it without that. Um, so, um, you know, talking about panel upgrades, that is a very expensive cost. Um, Luckily, I think there's an opportunity that we can continue talking with SMUD about, hey, you know, if you, if you um, pay for the cost of materials, maybe the homeowner can come you know, halfway and, and pay for some of the labor on that. And so again, I think there's, there's options, there's opportunities that we can continue to discuss on how we meet those goals and not put the burden on the homeowner um, and make those costs for new building and um, residential remodeling just out of touch for most homeowners, right, and most, most people. Um, I, you were mentioning at the time, the residential um, piece, at least, at, um, you're considering um, some type of ordinance that um, affects you know, when somebody goes to pull a permit to make an upgrade or a change um, to, for appliance upgrades, right? Or panel upgrades or whatever it is. Um, I, I think that would be a good opportunity. What I would advise the city Against is um, from again from the work that I see is you know if, if, if homeowners businesses, whomever uh, think that the process is too onerous, they're just not going to go through it they would rather not pull a permit and do it themselves rather than go through the onerous process. We get these calls from businesses all the time, oh what do I, you know I want to do some upgrades to my restaurant right and these are mom and pop not not you know mom and pop small small businesses and when we you know try to hand hold them through that process well you go to the community development department and you start here and you do you know it's they'll walk away so i think it's just to be mindful of that um as you're going through as we're going through considerations on uh how how do we trigger um you know the need um and uh i also want to go back to the staff needs um, again as we enforce these ordinances here at, at commission and at council uh we need to understand there's just going to be staff needs and and what i'm experiencing already with with building department um is that there's just not enough staff and projects are you know to no fault of anyone really it's just there's just not enough staff and projects are getting pushed back and that's everybody's bottom line right so um just be of course it's it's mindful of of the work that we do every day and the decisions that we make Um, but really i think for us i I, you know obviously i hope that you continue to engage all the stakeholders that you are now Um, again from a smud perspective i think it's critical that we offer those incentives um I just invited Jennifer Venema and maybe the, the, your team, will, we will be having a workshop with business owners and property owners and SMUD to talk about what's coming down the pipeline uh, with electrification and how to get in front of it um, and what, what opportunities SMUD has to support that work. Um, and I think we just need to continue to, again, work with our P bids and work with our communities and our non, um, neighborhood associations to have those conversations and, and do that work. Um, and then lastly, um, I just wanted to give you um, just a side note. We had acquired through a Shine grant um, some money to purchase some, all elect- some food trailers to help our small businesses that go through our entrepreneurship training program in Spanish um, to help them basically grow their mis- business and go from, you know, maybe an informal home business or a pop-up business to a food truck, right? And then that next step would be to get them eventually to a brick-and-mortar location. Well, we did, we able to, the caveat, of course, Smud's, SMUD's financing it so they wanted all electric um, trailers. Um, That was new to us, it was new to the city when we went through the county um, health department and building review, it was a very new process, right? We ran into a few hiccups when we got through it. Um, We we just held a ribbon cutting for um, a business um, in our district, Uh, it's a brewery that is now using one of those electric food trailers and what they're dealing with now is they had to create a separate panel for that trailer um, and 135 watt amp was not enough And so now what's happening is when it's very hot outside, they're having to shut down their entire food operation. Um, and so luckily, we had SMUD there at the ribbon cutting to sort of address some of those issues and come up with, again, some on-the-spot solutions to help them continue to use that. But again, it's, all, it's somewhat new territory, I think, for all of us. And so I would just urge you to, to continue before we start creating policies that are really going to impact people. Don't put the cart before the horse, as they say, and really try to find up with some solutions to address some of these issues around costs um, around staffing needs at the sea level and around you, know, you know, what do we do when we are running all electric and we're running into these issues um, with businesses and, and property owners. So, again, in a nutshell, that's it. I yield my time. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner mercier reed um, As was mentioned, I just wanted to say before we get to the next speaker um, that we have um, Jennifer Venema here with the Office of Climate uh, and Sustainability. We also have Steve Johns here with SMUD. He's available on Zoom if you have questions for him, as well as Ryan Gardner who's a consultant on this issue. Um, Kendra, uh, for your comments and that you made, do you need any responses from any of those representatives? Thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you, staff. Thank you, um, Commissioner Macias-Reed. We'll now go next to Commissioner Kaden.
14: <clears throat> thank you, Chair, and thank you for all your hard work on this issue. I just had a quick question on the um, California Restaurant Association case that you mentioned. So um, does that does that case preclude the city from doing any requirements on both residential and commercial, or is it just commercial?
18: So the <clears throat> direct impact of that case is on our new building electrification ordinance. Um, it does impact sort of... Comfort with potential approaches for existing buildings. Um, we're not currently contemplating, uh, I guess the only prescriptive re- requirement we're even contemplating is for on com- for commercial buildings is for this rooftop package HVAC unit. Um, for the most part, commercial buildings will be this performance-based approach, sort of recognizing, I think to your point, that there's these specialized end uses in commercial buildings that are challenging, uh, more challenging to electrify. And so really trying to take the approach of giving flexibility to business owners to decide, you know, how they choose to approach electrification. Um, we're, again, very fortunate here in Sacramento that uh, electrification of space and water heating is very cost effective. So there is that, you know, upfront cost. The upfront cost of replacing those systems is huge, regardless of fuel type, right? So it's it's a really big, um, I think, burden for businesses and homeowners when they have to replace these systems Um, I think the exciting thing is the opportunity to uh, you know take advantage of some of these incentives I think to answer your question it it, it impacts the decision it's still very up in the air but it is impacting our sort of how we're thinking about approaches for potential requirements Um, for mostly centered on residential but the direct impact of the case has to do with new buildings which would be all building types
14: Okay. So yeah. So it would be all all for new buildings. Okay. So would would the state legislature be able to supersede that? I mean, maybe this is a question of the city chair. I'm I'm just curious. Like, would the legislature be able to supersede that case? Should Should it um, not be overturned, or if there's a, you know, if it actually settles the way it is currently, would the legislature have a say in that?
5: Oh, thank you, Jeff Heron. No, the state is preempted by federal law just the way we are. So to the extent that uh, that statute has been determined by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to preempt certain actions that deal with what they call covered products, uh, the state of California is likewise preempted. There are, uh, it does contain some complicated uh, waiver provisions that, uh, programs that you can, Substitute regulations that aren't don't offend the main portions of the statute, but they are they are subject to the same preemption problem that we have. Adam, super helpful. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Commissioner Caden. Next, we have Commissioner Lamas.
15: Thank you, Chair. Um, and thank you for the presentation. I think it's uh, it's an interesting initiative, very um, uh, very big undertaking. So I commend you for all the work that you. Uh, um, have been doing and the work that lies ahead for you. Um, I did want to give a shout out um, to the Garland Northgate Neighborhood, and I sat on the board of directors for the Virginia and A, Garland Northgate Neighborhood Association. And I know they were involved with some of that outreach to the local businesses um, in, in regard to that effort to convert to, to electrification. And I know we heard comments about um, you know gas stoves just to make the chile rellenos you know, just a little bit different. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it is an interesting initiative, and I do see that there, um, there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, one thing I, I did have a question on was the energy benchmarking. So I work for, um, I manage a state program that owns, we own state facilities, and uh, the Department of General Services has a benchmarking program, and um, all the state departments have to report um, the en- energy consumption, uh, electric electric gas and water Um, one of the challenges I mean I know we we are compliant compelled to report because we're State Department this benchmarking initiative at the local level I'm kind of curious what that would look like and um, is there going to be like a partnership agreement with SMUD to report out the usage directly or is there an expectation from homeowners, landlords, uh, business owners to provide some of this information ongoing.
18: So I think a couple points. Um, You've highlighted, uh, I think, AB 802, which is the state's benchmarking program, and that requires buildings uh, 50,000 square feet and larger to report their energy use to the state. Um, So again, we are contemplating a... Local benchmarking program, which would set potentially set the threshold lower than that, but still in the very large building range. So no individual homes would be benchmarking their energy use uh, in a local program. It would be for large commercial buildings. Um, my understanding is the way that it works. It's uh, using, I think, if you're familiar with the Energy Star Portfolio Manager, is an online platform. Um and basically, building owners can connect their utility accounts directly to this um, platform to capture that energy use um, And my understanding is that there are some provisions um, through the law that sort of uh, I think both protect tenants um, but allow that information to be sort of transmitted to um, the state and it would be to the city um, in the event of a benchmarking um, ordinance but it would be incumbent on the building owner not the tenant of a building to, to complete that requirement does that answer your question
15: um, it does respond to it I so we the program I manage is a housing program um, so we pay the utility but And so we have the expectation to report. Um, So this expectation for larger buildings would be larger multifamily developments, I'd imagine, over, I don't
18: know. So that's a decision that we would need to make later on. If we were directed by city council to develop um, a benchmarking program, we would decide sort of on what are, they're called, it would be called covered buildings. So what buildings would be covered by this program? Some jurisdictions choose to set just a straight ahead size threshold. Some choose to exempt certain types of buildings. So for example, I think there's other jurisdictions that exempt industrial buildings or exempt affordable housing or things like that. Um, So that would be a process that if we were directed to move forward with a program like this, we would develop a more detailed framework for sort of what exactly what types of buildings would be covered under an an energy benchmarking program. So the strategy stays a little bit higher level than that. It doesn't, doesn't call those things out specifically. And that would be something we would sort of work out the details with, with community engagement um, following, uh, if we receive that direction from council.
15: Okay, perfect, and thank you for that clarification. I think um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I would just recommend that if it were get, to get to that point, um, that there be consideration for, um, I'm just thinking from the housing side, um, and it sounds like we have someone on the line, I know um, through the ESPM, Energy Star Portfolio Management System, um, some of of the service providers can provide, like, aggregate data reporting, and so there's a way for them to provide that so that it minimizes the impact to the business owners to have to report out and require increased staffing and stuff like that. I think that'd be important to consider. Thank you for that. I yield my time.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Lamas. Commissioner Chase.
9: 43 years ago, um, winning some early state and, and uh, national passive solar design awards. Uh, and once you've gotten into it and seen what can come from energy efficiency and that kind of thing, you can't unsee it. And so it stays as part of your system. And it has it has been uh, all along. Um, some years back I was, as Jeff was reminding me earlier, I was chief building official for the city of Sacramento. And as such, and this was pre-Cal Green before the state adopted it. Um, I, as some of here, the folks here may remember Jamie Cutlip uh, uh, on the planning department, she and I developed the green building ordinance that the city council eventually approved, uh, which then morphed and of course, was overridden when the Cal Green was approved, but uh, we were out there doing it, and it was it was a great, uh, a great uh, uh, time, a great accomplishment. I was fortunate to have met Ed, Mez, Ed Mezraya, who some of you may have heard of. He wrote and created Architecture 2030. He was an architect from... Uh, New Mexico and he really kicked this whole thing off probably 30 years ago I'm guessing. so um, it's really great to see all of this all of this happening and I'm, I'm all for it. Just a, a quick uh, uh, sidebar I, my wife and I bought years ago a small industrial building in Midtown converted it to our residence. Uh, it was a former black and deck repair shop. It was an all-electric building and it had and still has a plaque on the outside of the building from smud saying smud award-winning all-electric building and so very familiar with heat pumps and electric cooking and everything else so i've got to thank smud for that so anyway yeah a great job in moving this forward and i look forward to seeing it move, move, move further thank you
1: chair. thank you commissioner chase next we have vice chair wallace
6: thank you chair uh this question is probably for smud um i work in the transportation sector and uh, specifically on um, zero emission uh, transition, and, uh, or that's part of what I do, and we know that we have to have um, 100% of our fleet to be zero emission in transit, which will be buses, um, by 2029, and we wanna go to all um, cars sold in the state of California will be all electric by 2035, Trucks fleet will be by 2036 Um, and I've heard tell that in other jurisdictions there's a concern um, from other energy providers about being able to accommodate both building electrification and transit electrification or transportation electrification. So I'm wondering if SMUD can sort of speak to what they've done to sort of um, at least plan for that or start to um, build out whatever will be needed to accommodate those transitions.
19: Good evening, Commission. My um, name is Steve Johns. I manage regional local government affairs for SMUD. Um, thanks for the question. And it's, um, you know, SMUD's always had reliability as one of our three main goals and priorities for being your, you know, community-owned electric utility. And when we look at, at how we plan for our, our load growth, we have a five- and a 10-year plan for both transmission and for distribution planning. And we look at a variety of factors when we bake it in. And I can't speak for other utilities. I know that a lot of them use uh, formulas. They use other people's data. But we have our own teams to, to know what our customer base is doing. And we look at future load, including building electrification, including transportation electrification. We look at uh, energy efficiency. We, we uh, factor in rooftop solar battery storage um you know ev charging and we're trying to track to see where people are charging the most because that does have an impact and with with those projections is how we make our capital improvement plans and what we know we need to do to accommodate the load growth and so um you know we we know that electric vehicles will have an impact on the grid but we also know that uh with you know the foresight for planning that will help and and we also know that managed charging is is really a a key element to that and if you're as, as you mentioned commissioner wallace that you know you're involved with with fleet electrification and knowing when to charge and where to charge is is, is almost as important as just trying to figure out how you actually can get your vehicles uh, on your lot and charge them and so you know we we work with our customers to find the optimum time to charge both for their operations but also for their finances and for the grid and so if you combine all that you know we're comfortable that our forecasting and our planning is going to be able to accommodate the electrification of transportation and and buildings uh in our region
6: thank you for that
2: no other questions
1: thank you vice chair wallace next we have commissioner
2: thompson thank you chair um i had a quick question slash comment recognizing actually on the the residential component of this. Um, seeing the, the graph of how many single family residences and how much gas they're using was, was a nice and impactful piece. But on top of that, if we're gonna put into effect, uh, essentially a requirement that those will be removed in a decent amount of time, but still amount of time, we're talking about 20 years, 2045? Am I adding all right? Yes. That I see right now, and SMUD, I cannot commend SMUD enough for how effective and um, helpful they are to our whole city in in keeping us moving forward on, and being at the top of the energy perspective. Um, And I can see their assistance in helping to implement this, especially on the single family end. But how long will that go for? Because I can see like the grant systems that are in place right now are fantastic but they mean you need to act at this moment. And a lot of people, especially on the super low income, are not going to touch their systems until they are breaking, um, which might not be until 2042. So what does that, what type of assurances do we have that there will still be support for those families as they end up coming up against this newly implemented rule way late in the game and looking at a full system switch over when, like, how can we assure those families that the support that they'll need will be there? Thank you.
18: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I don't have a perfect answer because obviously there's a lot of factors that go into the availability of these resources, Um, politics being one of them. Right now there's, we're in this really unique moment, the Inflation Reduction Act, the idea of it is that it will be available for the next 10 years. And uh, I've, we've been involved in a lot of conversations with the California Energy Commission. Um, they kept referring to this initial investment. Um, they're working on programming the Equitable Building Decarbonization Program. They kept referring to it as a down payment. They really want to see this as a durable source of funding um, that extends for that full transition. Um, but I think trying to figure out you know, what we can learn from these initial projects um, to make the transition easier over time. I think one thing I've been blown away with uh, working on this for the last two years is just how much has changed just in that time. I think there was a period, uh, to speak to your point about transportation, where it was like this, a lot of fear around, you know can we electrify both buildings and transportation? And now I think there's been this interesting shift where we're seeing vehicles as an opportunity to improve grid resilience, um, to reduce costs for people, um, and to really you know protect in the, in the event of natural disasters. And that's just happened in the last <laughs> six months. I think when we talk about uh, panel upgrades, there's been huge shift in um, the availability of more efficient appliances. There's now 120 volt uh, heat pump water heaters that you can plug into a regular outlet. Um, there's, as Steve talked about, managed charging where you can be sharing a um, space on your panel between your dryer and your electric car and you're, you're not running your dryer and your car and charging your car at the same time. And all of that innovation is, is happening. So I think a huge part of this strategy, um, I think we've you know committed to Adaptive management of this strategy. Um, Those things are going to continue to change over time I think the other thing is that again at a level outside of our Our shop as a local jurisdiction. There's you know Planning happening at the California Public Utilities Commission the state level um, around potential, you know decommissioning what would it look like to decommission gas infrastructure in a more strategic way not just sort of going appliance by appliance but thinking about that more geographically and I think um, that's going to become increasingly important as more people make this switch uh, because we don't want to leave folks behind on gas infrastructure that's aging and that's going to cost a lot of money to um, maintain uh, and have that cost be spread over fewer rate payers. So those are all things we're you know, thinking about and going to need to continue to work on um, as we implement this strategy. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Thompson, for the question. I don't see any other hands, but I really do appreciate that question. Um, it's something that I think about a lot, too, because in the southeast area of Sacramento, which is the district that I uh, represent, um, it has the highest low-income population, the highest non-English-speaking population. We have Little Saigon in that area. We have a lot of diversity in the southeast area where these issues and these particular uh, requirements are going to impact those communities differently and at a different time frame as well. So I really appreciate that question. I think it's very thoughtful. Um, I see Commissioner Chase has his hand raised as well, so I'll go to him next.
9: Thank you, Chair. Um, Um, One comment in in this whole discussion, I haven't heard mentioned what the uh, gas utilities or American Gas Association (laughs) reaction is to all of this.
18: I can't speak for the American Gas Association, but I will say that P g and E have been sort of active partners in this conversation, um, and you know we're continuing to to meet with them and, and talk about it um, because I think you know there is'll we'll reach a point where maintaining gas infrastructure is a sort of poor business proposition, and so um, again, that's where sort of the I think continued adaptive management of this strategy. Um, the approaches may change over time. Um, I think we can see. Unfolding. It's, it's going to be an interesting ride, um, and we're, we're here okay. for it. <laughs> Thank
9: you. Thank you, Chair.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Chase. Um, you know, I'll just say also to some of the points that were raised earlier in terms of overall grid reliability. Um, I do appreciate the, the SMUD representative that's uh, on the call today, and I would like to follow up with you after today's meeting and just discuss further um, what that looks like in your capital improvement plan, um, because when we talk about all of these things that are eventually going to be plugged in, um, you know, it is going to put a strain on the system. And currently, there are, there is a minimum, ten-year lead time just to build new transmission. And current that so I would like to see sort of what that looks like as well. Um, I would also like to see and follow up with staff on. You know, you had one of the slides up uh, said that there was $410,000 for 20 plus heat pumps. I think that was for residential. Um, And then in another slide, um, I I was able to deduce that that for a new heat pump, that's at least $20,000, 20,000, more than $20,000 per pump. So I'm thinking about how much does it cost to upgrade a panel? How much does it cost for a new heat pump? How much does it cost for a new gas stove down the line? Um, All these things stack up, and I would like to see sort of a chart for what these things are gonna look like. I wanna know the true impact to a person's pocket. And I do understand that some of the analysis in here talks about um, the savings over time because we're gonna pay less in gas. But the truth is that maintaining an electrical system and maintaining a gas system or decommissioning a gas system, all those things have costs as well. And if we do wanna maintain an electrical system that is reliable for all of of the things that we're plugging in, that's also gonna cost to maintain. Um, so I don't, I don't quite understand that we're gonna see lower rates or lower maintenance costs in the future if we're using it more and building it more and having more folks plug in. I'm all for and totally appreciate the equity lens, the cultural competency that was raised as well, um, and and that the city and the state and, and all of us here believe in a zero emissions future. I think it's the only way to go, and it's the right way to go. Um, I think it's important how we get there. Um, I also think it's important to look at potentially other technologies that could be available in the future that are gonna get us there just the same, maybe better, and in particularly more affordable, especially for, for the folks who, who may be late to the game, or who may not have the resources today or, or in the future. Um, personally, when I, you know, I feel like I'm very privileged that um, many years ago, I was in a position where I can buy my first home and I'm a, proud to be a homeowner in District Six. It was really important for me to have a gas stove because tortillas don't taste the same <laughs> and, and particular foods and flavors and, and culture are different for different families and different people, but it was really important for me to have the choice to say where I wanna live It is in this neighborhood, this is where I can afford to be, but in order to cook for myself and my family and to provide, um, it's really important to have certain amenities and certain items that, that make it feel like home. Um, so again, uh, I know my comments tend to be a little bit unpopular, but um, I, I do wanna say that it's meant to show that It's not an either or and it's meant to show that there are solutions going forward and that we can be inclusive of lots of different types of opinions. Um, Seeing that there are no other hands raised and that this is a review and comment item, there is no vote required. Um, I will see that there's one other comment that wants to be made. Commissioner Chase, go ahead.
9: Oh, sorry, muted. Um, I want to refer back to your comment regarding the twenty thousand uh, dollars cost of a heat pump replacement. Um, I think that was uh, misunderstood the way that. Um, yeah, it's, it's going comment? Okay. Um, your question about the cost of the heat pump unit—I think that was something else on that slide that may have been intended. Because uh, the building I referred to, uh, our all-electric building in Midtown, we had to replace a heat pump uh, unit on that probably ten years ago. It was about six thousand dollars, so really no different than a, you know, a typical gas, uh, electric hybrid AC unit. So I think it's marketable.
18: I I do want to uh, comment because the that program is pairing uh, heat pump installation with home repair. Um, the sort of per unit cost may be a little bit different. Jennifer could speak to it more specifically, but um, really wanting to, particularly in these low income homes, to be pairing those together, not just doing electrification, but improving uh, other elements of home condition, which can raise the cost. Um, I do want to encourage folks again to uh, take a moment to go to Zero Home uh, and check out Zero Home, because it is an opportunity to see for your specific home. Um, And again, uh, if you don't have a single unit home in Sacramento, you can use 222 Demo Street to just see the tool. Um, But it Uh, gives you an idea of cost for these different projects as well as available incentives and that um, utility bill savings and potential payback period over time. So really pointing folks to cost-effective projects that are most cost-effective for their home.
1: Thank you for that. And thank you for clarifying uh, the reference to the the heat pump costs. But still to my point, most folks can't afford $20,000 if they had to do it on their own or if they're on the margins of those particular income thresholds. Any further questions or comments? Commissioner Boyd
3: One deal just have this real smooth and I won't look like I don't know what I'm doing with the uh, touchscreen. Um, just following up on what was just uh, gone over in regards to, to uh, projected hard costs or actual costs. Uh, again, that number of 20, uh, 21,000 just doing the math from the 410 yada 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 that jumped out to, to me as well. I mean, thank you for the explanation. I'm like, yeah, no, it doesn't cost that much, but you filled in the, not some of the blanks. But to that, let's round up, I can't even say 8000 for a heat pump for a, a single family home right now. Um, you know, okay, I'll say 8000 So let's say $10,000, yeah, that's still too high. Let's say 8000 Um So 12000 in an additional cost to, to do what? To, to cap your, your gas inlet, um, uh, change your panel. Okay, yeah, understood. I think I'm answering my own question here. So, uh, rewiring. Yeah, another four. I'm just doing the construction cost too. The, uh, I think I'm answering my own question. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took me a quick second because I was like, it, it, it was just a, a stunning number at, at 21. But um, um, in the future, in the presentation, You may want to add total, uh, what what is is projected at total, um, uh, bringing the house totally uh, 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 to electrification outside, heat pump included, with additional cost or additional um, work. Thank you. Thank you, Chair.
1: Thank you. Commissioner Boyd. All right. I think that's it for discussion items. Thank you so much, staff. This is a great endeavor, and appreciate all of your time and attention on this. Um, We'll next move on to Commissioner comments, ideas, and questions. Commissioners, do you have any ideas or questions you would like to raise today? Hearing and seeing none, we will now move on to public comments, matters not on the agenda. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item? Thank you, Chair. I have no speaker slips and
0: no speakers with their hands oh i'm sorry i have one person with their hand raised on this item um 350
20: sacramento yeah thank you my name is rosie akub i'm a volunteer with 350 sacramento um and i just want to point out that you know that that sticker price whether it's twenty thousand dollars or eight thousand dollars um when we're thinking about our switch outs um, you have to think about it in terms of if there is any incremental cost. I just did my heat, I just did my heat pump. It cost me like $13,000, which was pretty expensive, but it was replacing both my heater and my air conditioner. Um, so when you think about that in terms of like, what would it cost to replace a heater and an air conditioner? The incremental cost once I had my rebate was not very much all of these switch outs need to be thought of not in terms of total cost but in terms of incremental cost that is the cost that is a difference between what you are replacing as a gas appliance and the electric appliance these are expensive propositions to be sure but to to say the problem to you know stack it all up to electrification is not quite right we have to we do need to think about these costs, the rebates that are out there with the Inflation Reduction Act, with the tech program at the state level, and by SMUD, are, are deal with those incremental costs. Like, for example, you could get a $750 rebate for going with, from gas to electric on your stove, going to an induction stove, and that will take care of the incremental cost. Um, there will be no difference between what you would get um, replacing your stove once you have that rebate so I just want to be clear that when we're thinking about these things as, as, as additional costs, it's only if there is a remainder in incremental costs that there are any additional costs. Thank you.
0: Thank you for your comments. Chair, I have no other speakers for this item. Oh, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, comment is closed. That is
1: no other speakers for this item. Thank you very much, and thank you for your comments uh, from the public. This meeting stands adjourned at 8.49 p.m. Thank you. Have a good night.